The chief thing is to begin, after all. After which, the chief thing is to finish. Or so says the narrator of On Blue's Waters, and we'll take that advice. This episode is brought to you by Linked Up. Is your career in the doldrums? Have your prospects for advancement hit an unsubtle brick ceiling? Have you just not produced anything in, say, precisely three months? Maybe you've just become too darn picky. One of the greatest obstacles to a rewarding career is having to compete with other people who want the same job. Why not try an employment search site that creatively identifies new positions that are remunerative because no one else wants to do them? Try Linked Up. Linked Up uses a hostile, sentient AI technology that consciously arbitrages each position's pay versus its low social status, potential for public humiliation or physical dismemberment, and what Linked Up calls the ick factor in order to identify a relatively well-paid position that won't be especially discriminating regarding job experience, competence, personal reliability and hygiene, or a violent conviction record. As for user satisfaction, well, 75% of Linked Up subscribers did not report an unfavorable experience for whatever reason. I mean, presumably they were able to respond. It's not like they were kidnapped or killed. <laughs> Look, they sent out an email, they never got a response. Probably they were just too busy enjoying their time with a new coworker friends and never got around to checking their email. Linked Up is not about helicoptering. You wanted a job, they found you a job. What happens after, look, you wanted this. I spent the night at the police station. My probation was revoked. I lost both legs. When are you going to start taking responsibility for your decision? Man. And thank you, Linked Up, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning! The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We've read these books many times, and we assume you have too, or at least plan to. Besides, we're here to understand them, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Craig! Greetings. Guess what? What's that? <laughs> we have a deluge of corrections. <laughs> hey, you was wrong. That's, that is a loaded word for these, <laughs> for this story, at least. Maybe unless we we were just talking about that. Are there actual flood foreshadowing in the four books or do we wait till Earth? I don't know, but that's that we got time to get to that. We have yeah. plenty of other stuff to get to. Today, so. <laughs> well, this correction comes by way of email from Brian Lee. Okay. Actually, this is more of a correction for, for Mantis, for Michael Andre Jerusi, not us. So I appreciate Michael taking some of the weight off our shoulders. <laughs> On the issue of the red sun in Apupunchal's time, he cites chapter 49 of Earth of the New Sun. Uh, two citations. At last, Earth's old sun rose behind me in and rose in glory crowned with gold. And here the old sun had not yet dimmed. He says, this taken with all the other cues ends my argument. Severian traveled to the deep past 
far prior to our present day, 2023, at some point after people had got over the land bridge, the Bering Strait, and down to South America, but well prior to the Spanish conquest. So either Michael it was wrong, or you misremembered what he said, or his reference was to something in Book of the New Sun, not in Earth. There are some other uh, corrections and extensions that I might bring up later uh, in his email, but uh, you know, after we've talked through it a bit. But he ended his email very nicely. He said, that's all. I have not missed a single episode of the podcast. It's much appreciated and valued, as are its originators, yourselves. My, in Thank you. my intent was to zero in on some of these text references mentioned above and send you a more detailed email soon. Whether that is borne out, future will tell. Forgive any gross errors remaining uncorrected, as I have been voice texting. Please accept my continuing best wishes and enduring admiration for your remarkable endeavor and its faithful execution. Thank you for this opportunity to participate in a bit of scholarly pursuits of Wolf. I should mention that sounds like a long uh, ending to a, not much of an, an email, but his email is actually quite long. Yeah. By the way, execution is another loaded word, but that's okay. <laughs> so, uh, but thank you very much. Appreciate that. Of course, of course, of course. Um, and it's, you're right. I mean, you are right that he does, actually spell it out that the old sun had not yet dimmed but he still talks about the red sun in new sun right well, as i said yeah I, I have no dog in this hunt because i'm not i'm not going to discuss this you know with when, when we're not even in earth yet and let's all remember the advice of president calvin coolidge who said that if you see 10 boulders rolling down the hill toward you if you just stand there and do nothing nine of them will roll into a ditch. So <laughs> hopefully that this is one of those uh, <laughs> boulders in the ditch. We'll see. We'll see. If, and if, you know, if, if he is right, that that's what we got, then the red sun is, it's a mistake. It's just, yep. a mistake. Um, or it's multiple timelines, which is always a nice option to get yourself out of any <laughs> tricky contradiction. That's right. We, I, trust me. We, we were always make a point of you, Utilizing that whenever we can. <laughs> uh, let's see. On Reddit, Topaz Wolf liked our link of Hey Thor to that 19th century poem, The Yarn of the Nancy Bell. He says, wow, the cannibal sailor poem was a great catch and James's potential origin story for Hey Thor rings true to me. I only wish it helped us better link Hey Thor to Asia. If circumstance mm. is all that threw them together, so be it. But it feels like there's more there, there. Well, I do think there's more there, there, <laughs> <laughs> there, there. I think that the answer will be somewhere regarding why Hathor was so interested in Asia to begin with. And I suspect there might be a link between Hathor's Paracoita, Asia, and the box that Jahi hides in when she's running from Nod in the last act of the play. But time will tell, maybe. Okay. Hmm. That's that's very suggestive. <laughs> but, cool. Well, they're okay. all there. They're all there. I just don't, I just got to figure out how to put them together. <laughs> so Fair, enough. Fair it's, enough. It's a little Ikea set that Wolf has left us. <laughs> all right. So, oh, speaking of Mantis. Why are we going to get so serious? 
he has his own thoughts about the sailor poem. He says, yeah, 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 that sailor poem. Uh, granted, it has bearing, but I think Hathor has this crazy act that he does around Severian. I, well, I, I have to agree with him in the sense that I think his obeisance around uh, Severian is a kind of act, and I do think that there is subtlety to Hathor. I've noted that Hathor does a lousy job at assassinating Severian <laughs> and only ultimately drives him forward. I think Hathor kills Eusebia. That's what I've been convinced of. And I think he has his own agenda apart from Agia. Remember that Hathor, as crazy as he comes off, first accosted Severian outside Agilus's cell before he could have been commissioned by Agia. And I think Hathor kills the, that academic type who was out there with him at the time, who had all of that silver, because uh, Agia mentions that she gets him to give her his silver by you know doing all those sexual things with him. And, and that academic type was the only one who wasn't at Marwenna's execution. Mm -hmm. So Hathor is a competent murderer, and it's possible he's got a price on his head and that the Ulans came running out of Padilla's gate when they saw him, which is something Talos said they would do if they saw a criminal. So I do agree. Hathor is not only, not only a madman, but I find it very credible that he also comes off as weird. And off, and that could very well be the result of his eating his entire crew, who previously ate each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I gotta admit, I do like the the criminal thing. I mean that that could be another reason. Even just add it to what we had talked about, like why mm -hmm. the they come out of the uh, out of the wall there. So right. they saw him. He caused a commotion that was trying to kill. Yeah, Severian. Yeah, all kinds of stuff works for that. So okay, right. cool. Um, yeah, I'm not. I mean, the point about him meeting uh, Severian outside before he's killed him, that is true. But it is also after he's been sentenced to death. So, you know, maybe maybe, maybe she's, she's already pre. Yeah, <laughs> I, or, I might need you. <laughs> yeah. Or it even could be a thing like, you know, maybe she's going to have him help her if like to free him. But then they can't figure things out. But but it. Yeah, that I totally see what he's saying there. Right. I still, I got to admit, sorry, man, I, I still, I still <laughs> like the song. I still like the song. I just it's think, yeah, no, it's too sweet, too perfect. It's yeah. when you have two pieces that have never met and yet they fit together so perfectly, you know that there's some, some kind of design in that. And, and yeah. I, I don't know. It'd be very hard to convince me off of this. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, in my head canon about Hathor's backstory, I said that after he's eaten the last crew member, Hathor tucks a, piece of mirror sail under his arm and then walks into the other one of the other mirror sails. And this led to an extensive conversation with Mantis about sails on ships and which sail ships have sails. It's involved. It's interesting. And uh, maybe we'll eventually come to an agreement. Still, yeah, it's there on Reddit, uh, on the subreddit for this episode. Uh, so judge for yourselves. Not this episode, but last episode. Uh, let's see. Christopher Taylor. says your connection of Hathor with the cannibal sailor also correlates with what one of the Pellerines says in the Citadel regarding Alzabo heads and their messed up psyches. Well, I'm looking forward to that chapter. And he also says, how much discussion has there been to Thecla's possible influence on Severian's changing attitude toward Vodalus? Yeah, I think we might have discussed some of that some. Uh, he says, 
I can think of several reasons why she might be less than besotted with him after finding herself merged with Severian. Yeah. She might have always been less than impressed with her sister's douchebag boyfriend. She might have had a thing for Bodilus himself and become resentful when he chose her sister over her. She might have expected Bodilus and Thea to somehow arrange her release from the Manorchin Tower. That seems like a, a, a gimme right there. And felt abandoned by them, she might have felt used, holding Vodalus responsible for her current position. Maybe Severian feels disillusioned toward Vodalus because Thecla has been disillusioned toward Vodalus. Yeah, um, all those are possible. So it's it, that's kind of a weird scene. And, and frankly, Severian just comes off weird himself. As you know, Jonas notes, Look, you always knew he was a cannibal. <laughs> Why are you yeah. suddenly so upset by it now? Well, you know, it felt he has, Severian has a has an impressive ability to compartmentalize. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. But I I think that makes sense though that if Thecla's in there, and I mean, if we are looking for personality changes, what after he has her, then that would be part of it. That that could well, you know, be although he he already seems like he's kind of on the outs right before mm -hmm. he sits down to the meal. I think we talked about that, how it seemed like right. he was already kind of he like, would have, ah, he would have, he would have run away if he could. Yeah. 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 So, but it, but it still makes sense that that would solidify things. And that's one thing I still wonder about, like how much of Severian afterwards is a mix of Severian and Thecla, even when he's not, directly talking about her memories. Yeah, that's a that's a that's like the eternal conundrum. Yeah. So very suggests that there is some of it there. That yep. she she's responsible for people thinking of him as an educated man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are times too when he talks about you know being mis uh recognized for a woman and um other things that I don't think is specifically when Thecla's talking in his head to him or, or when he's talking about her memories. But, um, but still that's, that's one thing I've always wondered. Um, and I don't know that there is a solid answer to that. Um, I don't even know if Wolf had exactly decided what the line between personalities was going to be. Yeah. Um, of course, the Severians himself says that Thecla is okay with her situation. Mm -hmm. Right. When, uh, when he's originally joined at the end of the, uh, I think it's chapter 11 where or maybe it's 12 where he he you know he takes the el zabo concoction and um they're unified and he says you know we knew that she was dead and we were happy with it or we were okay with it and yeah but then how much does how much does he know right yeah i know and then how much is she alive like that's one question we've talked about a lot too is is she a person in there like yeah. would would is she a you know, soul for want of a better word. Like, right. is there any free or is will? Or she's just a running tape inside his head somehow. Right, exactly. And just sort of information coded his memory that right. he's got to somehow interpret. And we don't really know. I mean, I like to think that since he has the resurrection thing, that right. she's actually in there somewhere because that just makes it even weirder. Yeah. Um, because then you've got two souls somehow mixed in one. Um, right. And well, it, might be, it might be different with him than with right. anybody else again. Right. But that's something we definitely get talked about a lot in long and short, right. Of right. like, like becoming different people and multiple people. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but yeah, we're, but we're just not ever really told directly. I don't think unless there's some, we're going to come across some line that 
is just going to solve all the problems. <laughs> we that probably I had forgotten. will. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. On Facebook, Adrian Ion has some ideas about Baldanders and Talos. He says, I nice. feel there's an inversion of the Severian Jonas dynamic going on with Talos and Baldanders. If okay. Baldanders is the Megatherian Adam to the Hyro Severian, Talos is to him what Jonas is to Severian. Talos is cruel to Jolenta. Jonas loves her. They're both probably from the same era. Jonas caretakes for Severian, while Talos does the same for Baldanders. Yeah. It's a nice idea. I mean, that kind of parallelism works, especially if they're kind of opposite in different ways. Mm-hmm. And the yeah, the fact that Baldanders is kind of set up as a foil of some sort to him, then yeah, yeah maybe so. Yeah. Also on Facebook, Brent Dunn liked your mention of the Japanese author Haruki Murakami. Nice. Uh, yeah. Very nice. He says, I recently read Hard Boiled Wonderland and The End of the World and thought that there were a bunch of similarities to Wolf. That's so the whole, that's one book, by the way. Hard Boiled Wonderland and The End of the World. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. It's, it's good. It's very good. <laughs> and then you read the title and the book is over. So, um, he says that some of the similarities is because for most of the book, I wondered where the heck the story was going, <laughs> Yeah, but it's also has themes of identity and memory and a, a narrator who seems unreliable because he doesn't understand what's going on. Yeah. And that's true. And that's one thing Murakami deals with all the time. Like there are a lot of his books where you just don't really know quite what we're headed to so these are not he says hard-boiled but this is not a detective thing where there's a clear goal you know sometimes there are but a lot of times like this one you're just kind of stuck in the middle of people's experiences usually where they're kind of lost and wandering yeah he actually does stuff that's kind of sci-fi and i have always wanted to know if he had possibly read any gene wolf because i think they would have a lot to to talk about and be in Mm. common that's also the hardest. That's also a really hard one to start with because there's one part that's just totally like one half of it is all totally surreal and <laughs> never really explained, but it's like half the story. So um, oh, wow. there, there are other ones that are a little more straightforward to start. Kafka on the Shore is actually, it's just, it's a beautiful book. Just mm. a beautiful little book. Excellent. Let's see here uh, on Reddit Fisher Information has thoughts on Bill Maddox taking issue with our take on fantasy and science fiction in the book of the new sun. He, he spells his name Bill Maddox, like automatic, which is pretty cool. <laughs> he says that the, the issue by Bill Maddox about science fiction versus mysticism can be reconciled by Wolf's Catholic outlook. Catholic philosophy has both an efficient and cause effect for the existence of a thing. The deterministic chain of cause and effect which precedes the thing and the God-given purpose that for the sake of which the thing exists. I'm with James in that there is very little direct divine intervention in the Book of the New Sun. I think that's, Greg, that's your position too. But materialistic explanations are compatible with a divine intent guiding the world toward the new sun. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're a Christian, God didn't need to, you know, be uh have sin jesus right he could have just you know forgiven us about that many uh, i've heard uh you know many agnostic and atheistic arguments on well why the heck you know didn't god just forgive us why does he go through all this stuff but you know in that sense god has injected himself into history which is necessary 
in order to deal with us who have to unfortunately live in history. And I, I'll say too, I don't, I, I will take issue. It, it's one way to solve the problem. And if you're sympathetic mm -hmm. to that kind of approach where yes, there are two explanations for the same thing, then it solves the problem. If on the other hand, you also recognize that those are two very, very, very different kinds of causation in that one just happens and doesn't need to even have a plan at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And the other one is all about setting everything up by an end goal um, at the end. Then they're still pretty different. I mean, there, there's yeah. a there's a lot of ways to to say, yeah, that's not, it sounds good. <laughs> like even when Wolf, <laughs> like, I mean, because when Wolf's talking about the the metaphors and whatnot, that's, you know, he's giving a sort of, he's offering that as a way to do it, but it's not right. so much a philosophical argument that it makes the best sense. Like, um, I'm not sure. I don't know that it does because it's, <laughs> it's like, yes, that works so far, but then, okay, well, if, but if God is ultimately the one in control that set up the final cause for everything, then the intermediaries aren't really a cause. They're, yeah, they're true. just they're playing out effects. something that, mm -hmm. yeah, there, there's an effect. So in that case, it's not deterministic because it's just, you know, and, and so it is all about free will um, or God's free will or whatever. But anyway, mm -hmm. that's a long tangent. And you know, <laughs> I guarantee you that those arguments have been going on for, let's see. Oh, yeah. Well, let's see. When did, 3, 000, when, how long since Plato and Aristotle? <laughs> 3,000 years and some. Yeah. Well, I think it's the last thing in Lord of Light. Remember, he, he says, uh, he says, OK, he, he actually lays out the difference between fantasy and science fiction. He says one one is unexplainable and the other is potentially explainable. Mm -hmm. So yeah. he I, and I guess even though his, that particular book is really front to back fantasy, he considers it. Uh, and 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 base and tells it as though it is science fiction because it's just so far in the future and and beings that are just so powerful that they their their powers are like God. Yeah. Yep. And I think that as much as Wolf talks about that idea at different times in it and and offers it as like here's the way to look at these things, I will hold that there are still times in the book when it's directly questioned. Like if, no. like if it was that simple and if that answers all the questions, there's no question of faith anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's solved. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> and yet, and, and yet the drama of faith continues. So, yeah. All right. All right. Oh, well, incidentally, Bill Maddox posted to the Facebook page about where is the best place to start reading Lord Dunsany's stories. Interesting conversations there. Yeah. And, um, yeah. uh, I, John Cassane on there, I know, cause I read that today, but he offered King of Elfland's daughter, which is one of Dunsany's novels. Uh, he wrote fewer fantasy novels. He's mostly wrote a lot of short stories, but yeah, King of Elfland's daughter is just a gorgeous, gorgeous little fairy tale that goes in all the kind of weird Dunsany ways. But is I, it long, is it a lot, is it a short story or a, no, it's a novel. It's a short, novel. I guess, technically, Hmm. I, I don't know like the that. word. It's more like a novella. It's short. Yeah. I mean, I, it's my copy. I'm looking at it right now. It's it's skinny. I mean, it's not teeny <laughs> skinny, but it's skinny. But uh, for my money, I think his little short stories are really, really, really uh, like just distilled down to the pure essence of 
whatever kind of wonder he could create, mm-hmm. which was a ton. Um, just cause you can read these little things that often start off seeming very innocent and like, Oh, I've heard this story, like the sort of well around you're like, Oh, okay. It's a legend about a, you know, a king and a prince and a legend and whatnot. And by the end of it, it is just gone so many weird places and it's not that long. And <laughs> yeah. that happens over and over and over and over again. So wow. yeah, just read it. Just, it doesn't matter where you start. You're going to want to read all of it in the end. So Yeah. Let's see. On Reddit, uh, Turambar29 has thoughts about the title of Chapter 31 of Claw, uh, The Cleansing. He says, The overall story of trajectory of Book of the New Sun has Severian bringing the new sun, resulting in a cleansing flood of corrupted earth, though it means the death of many. We don't actually see this happen until Earth of the New Sun, but we get many pointers along the way, not the least eschatology and Genesis. The thematic connection for this chapter could be that Severian brings a new sun in Apupunchau and Jolenta is cleansed of her corruption, though it means her death. The profound words before the close of the volume may yet have more depth in this view. It had been washed clean of beauty, he says. In the final reckoning, there is only love, only that divinity, that we are capable of only being what we are, remains our unforgivable sin. Yeah, I feel really bad that I didn't notice that word in that sentence when I was reading, because I I kind of feel like Jerembar 29, <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I feel like you have really focused on where it's got to be going. Yeah, yeah, clean and, of beauty. Yeah, that and, she's been cleansed. She's yeah, been washed and, clean. And there's rain. Look at all the water, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he init- he immediately after that broadens it out to that sort of um, little aphorism. But also, of course, like he says, when you know the whole story, you know, in some way what's coming and you know what the play has talked about, a you know, a flood coming right. and um, or some kind of, you know, end of the new sun's going to bring some kind of apocalypse coming. That's that's what it's got to be. And so it is, I think, in the end, really broadening out to that more metaphorical point, which is also, of course, a plot point. It's not like it's either one. But yeah, that's right. I I feel bad. I didn't notice that. But thank you for doing that, because now that's that's the sentence you got to look at. It's been washed clean of beauty. That's an yep. interesting. Oh, and that's, yeah. that's gorgeous. Yeah. Cause it's the beauty is the, the false stuff and it might right. be, I mean, what is the flood? It's a horrible thing, right? Which is still going to let you change and let humanity yeah. regrow. It's, it's yeah. From our perspective, it's not going to seem all that good. And <laughs> that same kind of thing is happening here with Jalinta, but it is also turning into a good thing in the long run in some way or another. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that's absolutely, absolutely spot on. Yeah. It makes me think of uh, the, the Dylan song. Uh, Don't trust me to show you beauty. Beauty may only turn to rust. Yeah. Mm, I like and, it. Yeah. She's her beauty was only rust. Yeah. Oh, Craig, we got an Apple podcast review. Nice. That's yeah. been it's been a while. Or shoot, it's been a while since I've noticed. I haven't actually Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't checked. Well, so Well, it's from Darling Ricky, and it starts off hopefully enough. Yeah. The title is Appropriately Impenetrable. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. And he says, It may be my fault for dropping in and not starting from the beginning. 
But the hosts not only assume you've read and reread these books, I have, but refer to events and characters in an offhand way that left me in the dust. What's more, they refer to theories and analyses as though we already understand them. Furthermore, the credence given to every odd theory just triples the confusion. <laughs> two <laughs> stars, two stars. Ow, that's the worst rating we've gotten so far. No, well, I have to say, darling Ricky, I think this is a clear case of really. It's on you, man. <laughs> well, being not, yeah, being mad that the podcast isn't something different. Um, yeah, we can't do what we're doing, and every episode say now more women. Let me give you who yeah, is let the me, character. <laughs> yeah, uh, can you imagine what we would have? Is basically my breakdown that I do for the book. We would need a breakdown for my breakdown. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, and it's it's just if we're gonna do this, we we kind of have to do like we're doing. Plus, fact is, and I think most most people who are listening to this don't just jump in or yeah. pick and choose. I mean, you may pick a favorite chapter here and there, but. I think most of you guys are listening to the whole thing in order. So, yeah, which I mean, is awesome <laughs> and still weird that you're doing that. But I guess it's weird that we're talking about it this much. Yeah, so, we're yeah. still moving so, forward. Now, I understand what he says, but at the same time, it is weird to look at something like this and be like, hmm, I'll just randomly pick chapter 17 of, I don't know, the second book. Let's try that. Well, you and, might try that. You might say, well, this might be a very good way for me to get some information about this particular chapter. And I think true, it really it is. But then you're going to get in and say, OK, these guys are basically just going through a personal exploration chapter by chapter of this book. And they're discovering things. And, you know, they probably they, I, I bet because I mentioned it almost every uh, episode, how much I've changed. My mind has changed on some subjects. So we're always changing our minds. Yep. Certainly I do. And, uh, you know, for people who just want to skim, I, I hope the summary episodes will be useful to people. But, you know, we're still in the middle Even of this. Even those, we, we depend on a lot of stuff we've talked about. Yeah. And we do this, we do this, this, this podcast the way we do it. I mean, there are other really great podcasts covering this book who, you know, handle things sequentially. They reveal things as the book reveals them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But... If you're going to do it the way we are doing it, you can't, you're going to talk about everything in the book and you're going to talk about all of the possible ideas about what's going on. Like, I'm, yeah. Darling Ricky, this is on you. This is on you. How can you give me two stars? I give you two stars. <laughs> I think we're okay. I think, I don't, I think we have enough that, that a few bad reviews are. You can't I mean, I mean, please everybody all the time or however the phrase goes. So. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be any good if we were pleasing everybody. Yeah. On Facebook, uh, Michael Hermes says, I have an observation. James and Craig will occasionally attribute some facet of Wolf's writing to, well, that makes sense. Wolf was an engineer. Most of these associations have been a bit of a stretch and seemed to be more attuned to someone who simply has a firm attention to detail. It's logical to assume that one's vocation will impact their worldview to some extent, but some of the proposed connections have been akin to saying, aha, the way so-and-so wrote their grocery list makes more sense once you know about their MFA. <laughs> <laughs> he says, engineers are not a monolith. We contain multitudes. Apparently, Michael is feeling microaggression against engineers 
here. So, so we apologize. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and my son is currently an engineering major. So yeah, I, I totally get it. No, and that's I, why he's like that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, no. And I think that's just kind of become, I tried to explain this on there, but I think that's just become like our little like sign for it's another one of those points when Wolf is going to get into the the very the technical over explaining yeah. of exact logical details and of whatnot. how how talluses and, are built or how someone is driving in a flying car. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, which is very science fictiony too. I mean, let's mm-hmm. let's of course also from someone from older sci-fi where hard sci-fi was all over the place all the time um but yeah so it yeah totally right it's not necessarily something that all engineers would do all the time but um but wolf definitely has a tendency to fall into that and it's i still maintain it's not just being very logical like it stands out as like this stopped everything (laughs) it's like why would it, it it's, it's like half a page of just this stuff that we're not going to come back to. And it's my one complaint about his style that <laughs> um, happens. And it feels like it's happening deliberately not to explain something else sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, you saw that email from Stephen Frug about chapter two of Sword of the Lictor. Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure. I, I keep going through it. How can I how can I present this in audio form it's just basically a, a friend of his who's gone into all of the the mathematics involved in two sentences that, mm. that we'll put into that chapter yeah yeah but we'll see we'll give it a shot uh, also uh michael says question am i crazy or does james sometimes say citadel of the otter is that a joke from early on that i missed <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I, I suspect. Frankly, if it is, it's that, one that Wolf actually made himself. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that by the time this audio file gets compressed and uploaded to the site and then your streaming app compresses it again, I suppose my K's are getting uh, compressed away. <laughs> However, I'm pretty sure I will say Citadel of the Otter from now on. So <laughs> thanks for that. But yes, but real quick, if you don't know, yeah, that's what somebody missed labeled Citadel Yotark one time and Wolf tells that story in Castle of Days that was originally called Castle of the Otter, that part of it. Um, and yeah, that's where it's from. Oh, oh, so we last episode, we discussed uh, Wolf's short story, King Rat. Uh, and if you're a patron, then you heard our discussion of that. But just before that came out, uh, I, I don't know if Autark of Reddit is a patron or not, but just before we released that uh, summary episode, he or she posted a review of King Rat on the Gmail subreddit. So it's entitled Just Finished Reading King Rat. So check it out. Oh, cool. I think I missed that. Awesome. Let's see. Also on Facebook, Brian Donahue says... Recent binge listener, first time poster, love the podcast. Currently on episode 10B for Shadow of the Torturer. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. He says that a listener pointed out the connection between Vodalus's coin and a sacramental initiation, a sacramentum being tied to a soldier's oath. But I didn't see anyone point out that this happens immediately after Severian is baptized. His pledge of allegiance to Vodalus makes sense in this context, as part of the sacramentum of baptism is an oath of allegiance to one's Lord. In the case of an infant, the godparent supplies this pledge of faith on the child's behalf. 
Later, of course, Severian partakes of the other sacramentum initiation, a Theclean Eucharist. In Christian theology, baptism is understood as participation in Christ's death and resurrection. Um, in the ancient practice, baptism was full immersion. The cacumentum uh, descends into the abyss, death, darkness, Sheol, the place of sea monsters like Leviathan or uh, Abaya, and passes through it as Israel passed through the Red Sea and emerges a new creation from the water, just as the first creation emerges from the chaotic primordial waters of Genesis 1. Severian enters the waters of Guile, as many have argued persuasively. The literal meaning of the text here is that Severian dies and literally resurrects. Well, maybe. He emerges into this new life, curiously, the text tells us, by hitting the bottom of the river and descending down, he descends, he ascends up. After recovering, he returns to the necropolis and the events of chapter one play out, a chapter fittingly called Resurrection and Death, which again is what baptism is all about. Moreover, he starts his account with the aftermath of our swim, this baptism serving as a new beginning, a rebirth, which begins a pilgrimage in which Severian himself is cloaked in the robe of a pilgrim with the mantle he buys from Nessus. Yeah, that's pretty good. Others have noted the baptism uh, symbolism in Severian's drowning and the implication that Brian is making here that Severian might have literally died. And I suspect we did as well. But I don't think I've seen anyone sum it up the symbolism more expansively than this. Yeah, no, I like this a lot. Yeah. I think, too, he made a point about wondering if it was similar or did, or did I make that shoot? I can't remember. I know it came up when we talked somebody. about somebody, <laughs> somebody somewhere said, um, a wondering how man. similar, <laughs> Yeah, hopefully, um, but a, whether or not it was similar to sort of Wolf's conversion experience or not. And I couldn't remember if in letters home or if anything else, if he ever really sort of lays out, the experience he had? I, or, uh, honestly, I don't think, I don't, maybe someone will correct me. I don't know of that. Uh, Letters Home, of course, takes place before that. Before, yep. yep. So, yeah, be really interesting. Let's see, oh, oh, Brian has a subsequent uh, post because he was thinking about my assertion that the term Nessus comes from Buenos Aires, Guile from the Uruguay River, Saltus from Salto, and he adds that the Uruguay River runs up along the border of the Brazilian state of Santa Catarina. Uh, possibly, I think that's been mentioned, but he's looking for more. He says, we know Nessus has moved gradually north. If we move north of present-day Buenos Aires, we immediately find ourselves out of the Argentinian province of the same name and into the province of Entre Rios, meaning between the rivers, Uruguay and Piranha. For the same reason, it's also known as the Mesopotamian region, as in the Greek Mesopotamia, which means the same thing between the rivers. And the original Mesopotamia sits between the Tigris and the Euphrates, two of the four rivers mentioned to pinpoint the location of Eden in Genesis 2. And this may be me baking a five-layer speculation cake. It smells <laughs> delicious. But... Given the strong Genesis Eden themes in the Book of New Sun, this could further support the Buenos Aires location of Nessus and subtly indicate there's a new Eden or a new creation motif in Severian's journey north. 
the coming flood being an uncreation and recreation in biblical imagery. That, Craig, is really good. Cool, 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 cool. Okay, and also some old stuff uh, from Real Fake Lawyer in in Reddit. He wants to talk about Chapter 3, The Autark's Face. He says, I'm four years late discovering Rereading Wolf podcast. I just finished Episode 1-3. It was driving me nuts. But it seemed like Craig and James were right on the cusp of saying what I think are the most interesting things about the coin. Yet, they never said it. (laughs) He says, the coin itself is a delightfully layered piece of symbolism. So I feel driven to elaborate the point here. Points, uh, it was given by Vodalus to Severian after his life was saved. Coins with the face of the Autark are given to soldiers. Two faces of the coins... Uh, the Autark initially thought to be the face of a woman and a flying ship, which is the same as that found in Severian's mausoleum coat of arms. The coin is later revealed to be fake. Uh, Severian later goes back to the museum and confirms that the face of the coin is not Vodalus. Observation one, since Vodalus gives the coin to Severian and Severian immediately associates it with the ceremony, he imagines himself joining Vodalus's cause and feels as if he actually joined it. And this is most certainly not Vodalus's perspective since immediately prior sentence, uh, Severian says that Vodalus, that he's already one of the Vodalari. So this is an introduction to the cause. Severian's already in it. Instead, Vodalus is really just giving him a cash tip for his help in the fight. But Severian creates the symbology, making it mean so much more with the significance uh, breaks down. And then the other observation Severian thinks himself joining Vodalus's army, not the army of the Autark. If this was true in the ritual, then it would not be too surprising if the coin that Vodalus gave to Severian did in fact have Vodalus's face on it. But, and this was something that I brought up in the, during the um, summary before I saw what he was, uh, his particular post. Yes, that's the whole point. Severian doesn't realize it, but because these symbols have power, He's actually joined the army of the Autark, and, yeah. and Volus doesn't realize that either. Yeah, yep. That that's the kind of the big thing that he's. It's making a commitment to all kinds of things without really knowing it, and that the truth of it is something that'll only come out later in the making of it. So yeah, that's that's really yeah, that's the big that's the big outcome. And I know we've I think we talked about it later on. I'm, I'm yeah, sure no, we talked about it in the last it. episode that yeah. I hadn't really, I had missed it when we were talking about it before. And I was a little bit uh, confused by that, by the statement, you know, the, the face on the coin was not Vodalus's. I thought that was, yeah, yeah. And it's only very, actually rather recent that I said, oh, wait, wait, that's chapter one and chapter two go together. You keep the cooks and charlatans and business babe. How can we express our thanks to people who will stick with us even when we disappear for a few months at a time? I guess we'll just do it by putting out more episodes. But thank you all so much to those who have joined up while we were in our little absent break there. Um, And for everyone, of course, who stuck with us too. So we are back now. And for all of those who have signed up at patreon.com, you'll be getting more stuff now and you'll actually be getting something for your money. So thank you all very much again for sticking with us. 
Surprisingly, we even had a number of new people while we were not producing things over the couple months. So we have some new patrons to thank. First, we have new journeyman Peter Lanier, Sam Petto, John Whaling, and Geddon. And then we also have a number of new master patrons to thank and new clips to make. So thank you to Noah Trapolino. I will fall into your trap. Michael Smith. Mr. Smith and his band are written now. Mr. Smith. Uzair Kadir. And Andrew Cruikshank. All pronunciation problems are my own, but thank you all again so much for sticking with us, for all of you who are still there, for those who are new, for those who are considering it. We plan to start producing more again to make sure that if you do sign up for Patreon, you're getting your money's worth. And speaking of, there is a short discussion of a story on the version of this episode posted to Patreon. So if you are new, click over there and listen to the end of the episode where you will hear us talk about an uncollected wolf story or newly collected, I should say. There's your tease. All right, Craig. Well, Severian finally, after all this time, finally starts his job, the actual job that he's been training for all of these years that he's been looking forward to. And boy, everyone is really excited about it. Not only is it a new chapter in his life, it's a whole new volume, even. <laughs> that's where we're going. We are starting afresh with, well, depending on how you read it, even. Either the third volume or you're actually now into a second physical book if you're reading the yeah. tour versions. Exactly. Yeah. All right, let's go. The Sword of the Lictor, Volume 3 of the Book of the New Sun. Ah, so here we begin. The Sword of the Victor. <laughs> We've made it. Are we halfway through? We'll say we're halfway through. Let's let's not count Earth. We let's say we're halfway. We might through. as well be halfway through now. Yeah, we're halfway through now. Yeah, sure we are. I don't. I haven't really counted the chapters, but pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. It's all downhill from here. Everything else will be crystal clear. Exactly. But no, we literally set a whole book aside. <laughs> like not just one, just two even. We set a whole collection. Shadow and Claw, we have set aside now. Yeah, very good. So um, I guess, I don't know how to start. We have an epigraph to this volume, right? Here's what we get. Into the distance disappear the mounds of human heads. I dwindle, go unnoticed now. But in affectionate books, in children's games, I will rise from the dead to say... The Sun by Ossip Mandelstam. That is the full poem by Mandelstam. Uh, the, the title, Craig, is Mounds of Human Heads. Yeah, pretty much yeah. just part of the first line. Yep. A little bit of romantic poetry. In uh, the essay in Castle of the Otter, you readers can easily obtain that little book in the collection Castle of Days. Wolf said the following about this epigraph there. Mandelstam was last seen in December 1938 rooting through a garbage heap near Vladivostok. I gave that a shot. He had <laughs> ventured some remarks critical of the Soviet government, which drolly illustrated his error by sending him to Siberia to be starved and beaten to death. As they do. What, yeah. more, can, <laughs> what more can I say but that sword is one of those, quote, affectionate books. And the Castle of the Otter, <laughs> is that another? <laughs> 
So yeah, he's, um, I'll totally be pedantic here. So on the little rabbit hole I went down trying to find out about, it. I don't know if romantic is technically the right thing because he was, because romantic in like, to like hardcore poetry people means a very kind of, you know, specific spiritual kind of thing. And he was part of a group that tried to be, they called themselves something like in Russian, it meant something like the imagists. Yeah, but, the acmeists, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, it's, and it's, the closest I can find is sort of close to the idea that you get with William Carlos Williams and guys like that, where the whole idea of poetry, and this is in English, is really to like kind of get back to the point, be very clear about things. Exactly. The, yeah. But also they had a bit more of a kind of sort of neoclassical strain to them where they really wanted to shoot for this kind of like formal ideal to that there was some kind of you know the poetry was something that could stand up and create ideals to live by mm -hmm. and ideals to so there was his whole thing had this really kind of high-minded world behind it it wasn't you know sometimes romantic poetry is seen as like you know really just rough and from the cuff and just your sort of raw emotions and these guys were more like William Carlos Williams, where they would spend hours and hours trying to say something that seemed like it should be very simple, mm -hmm. um, but they just wanted to get it just perfectly crafted to be there. And that was kind of the point of what they were doing. Now, how does that get you in trouble with the Soviet government? Oh, well, Craig, <laughs> <laughs> he actually called his movement the revolution of the word. So He's mm, bound to, yeah. to, to bump up against the Stalinist government. Uh, he he believed that the poet was an outsider and effectively a criminal. <laughs> so, yeah, sure. In fact, this poem was written at the very beginning of The Great Purge in 1937. Yeah, so their literary heroes were Alexander Pope, Theophile Gautier, Rudyard Kipling, Inokentia uh, Anensky. I've... Gautier and Aninsky, I've never heard their names spoken out loud. So, yeah, if the pronunciation is incorrect, there's a reason. And Pope, they always have Pope. And Pope is always, apologies to anyone who really likes like 18th century poetry, but Pope just bores me to tears. <laughs> <laughs> He's seen as like such a classic stylist of, you know, sort of upright poetry. And I just, I, just, I don't know. But that's true of kind of most yeah. things for the 18th century for me. Well, he got in trouble in 1933. He recited a poem called Stalin Epigraph at some small private gatherings. And uh, he, more than once, but he, you know, he always just recited it. He never wrote it down. Uh, he, it would have comments like, uh, if people would talk on occasion, they should mention the Kremlin Caucasian, around him a rabble of thin-necked minions, they're his toys, his fawning half-men, his cockroach whiskers leer, his shining boots flare, his fingers are fat as grubs, and every killing is a treat. Uh, in, the, in the version that the police got, it, he called Stalin the peasant slayer. He never, like I said, he never wrote it down, but... It's never, you always want, like, there, you always want there to be some kind of, like, deep reason why Stalin didn't like that style of poetry. And it's yeah. like, no, there was just, like, one phrase, that's it, you're done. No, no, this was something... <laughs> Ironically, the poem started, we live deaf to the land beneath us, 10 steps away, no one hears our speeches. If only that were true, mm. <laughs> because yeah. even though he never wrote it down, someone had memorized it at one or more of the meetings where he recited it and oh, turned him in. And on the other hand, you know, maybe the secret police were listening, who knows. But the police handed him a copy 
that they'd written down or someone had written down, and he admitted to being the author. And it was just a matter of principle not to deny his own work, even though, you know, he obviously could because he'd never actually written it. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that would have worked anyway, but no one would have blamed him for trying. Yeah. So he fully expected to be executed, but he got a lot of support from quarters within and without Russia. Pasternak, the author of Dr. Zhivago, who was never purged and was personally shielded by Stalin, he was among them. And if Mandelstam had known what was in store for him, I, I think he would not have been so high-minded about admitting to the work. Probably, yeah. He, yeah he'd written previously, only in Russia is poetry respected. It gets people killed. Is there anywhere else where poetry is so common a motive for murder? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> nice. And Stalin, you know, himself was a voracious reader, which should put to rest the ideal that reading necessarily elevates the soul. But because of internal and European support, instead of being shot or sent to a gulag, as happened to many people for far less, the order was literally isolate but preserve. And Mandelstam and his wife were sent to a remote town 1,600 miles west of Moscow, where he only had to suffer from the PTSD of his interrogations. Uh, His wife watched him continuously for four nights, but as soon as she fell asleep, he immediately tried to commit suicide by jumping out of a window. And this permanently injured his arm, but dying and then living again seemed to have cured his broken psyche. His wife said the attempt effectively healed his mind. Hmm. Uh, She wrote a memoir that was published in 1970 called Hope Against Hope. She said, uh, anybody who breathes the air of terror is doomed, even if nominally he manages to save his life. Everybody is a victim, not only those who die, but also all the killers, ideologists, accomplices, and sycophants who close their eyes or wash their hands, even if they are secretly consumed with remorse at night. Every section of the population has been through the terrible sickness caused by terror, and none has so far recovered or become fit for normal civilian life. So after that, Craig, his exile was commuted to be banished from living in the 12 largest cities in Russia. But he could still live anywhere else. However, in 1937, during the Great Purge, he could see that things were getting dicey, and he published a poem called Ode to Stalin which he hoped in vain would save him. It, it's, it's so embarrassing. I'm going to defer from reading any of it. Any of it. Uh, Stalin's Russia was just pretty bad. Alas, this was not a time when gestures like that could turn the tide. So in 1937, his advocates in Stalin's inner circle were being executed. So at that time, he visited Moscow to try to get work from the Soviet Writers Union, a truly detestable guild of its own. Don't take my word for it. Look it up. The organization had a literary fund. And from that, they let him and his wife stay at a house cabin in a small town of Samatka. I gave it a shot while they considered his request. And but this was a trap. The head of the union, Vladimir Stavsky, seized on the opportunity of Mandelstam's friends being newly dead in order to denounce him to the secret police. And they were sending him to an isolated location just as a ruse to allow him to be arrested without the public and his writer's friends in Moscow and Europe knowing about it. This sort of reminds me of uh, Thekla's arrest, really. He Mm -hmm. was charged with counter-revolutionary activities and sentenced to five years in Vladivostok. If you want to know how far out of the way that gulag is, it's almost on the Sea of Japan, but not in view of anything pretty. Just north of Korea, of North Korea, 
where, by the way, the winter was a horror story for the American Allied troops during the Korean War. People were not really expected to survive these Siberian gulags, and Mandelstam didn't disappoint. He arrived in August, and he was dead by December of maybe typhus, maybe something else. His family was simply told that he had died of heart failure. And his wife wrote, that's like saying he died because he died. What is death but heart failure? <laughs> and the, the writer uh, Varlam uh, Shalomov was in a gulag at the same time, but apparently not where Mendelstam was. And he did survive, but he spent all but a few months from 1937 to 1951 in Siberian gulags. And eventually he was released and he wrote a short story called Cherry Brandy that claimed Mandelstam's fellow inmates concealed his death for two days in order to collect his rations, which seems like something people would do. Now, Craig, I tell this story because it made me realize that uh, despite the gratuitous cruelty of the Madachin system, Severian seems unaware or conveniently claims to be to Dorcas of any purely political prisoners at the Madachin. It doesn't seem to be a concept that Severian can even conceive. To Dorcas, he speaks of murderers and other normal criminal behavior, mm -hmm. even at the end when he's emptying the tower. Yep. Uh, Talos's play, for example, is not censored. But, you know, in that case, there were extenuating circumstances. Even Thecla, although she sees herself as a pawn to get Thea to turn against Bodilus, we learn that she was actually arrested surreptitiously, like Mandelstam, for sending communications to insurrectionists. And it appears that she was a true believer to the end. But the autarch claims, granted, I have major doubts about this, that he didn't know anything about it, suggesting at least that it was something that he would not have ordered himself. And even if he's lying, as I think he must be, about being in the dark about Thecla's imprisonment for a year, the fact that he lies about it suggests it's not something he's exactly proud of letting go on. So it strikes me that this could be the most superficial reason that Severian failed at last as the lictor of Thrax. Of course, there are other reasons. Many reasons. Severian, yeah. was, <laughs> Severian was ordered by the Archon not to act, though, as an administrator of the law, but as an assassin for an influential member of the Archon's court. Even the Archon seems uncomfortable with the idea. So, the, But the code of the Madison is not to ask questions, not to, not to the clients and certainly not to the superiors. We obey. We follow orders. So Severian failed his family and religion again by not following the most basic rule, which is the fact, the only rule. Now, I'm not asserting that people in the Commonwealth didn't get murdered for political reasons, only that Severian doesn't mention anyone falling under the axe in an official capacity for counter-octorial activities. I, it doesn't appear that there's a ministry of propaganda or arts to manage what people say. And this might be idealism on Wolf's part, but still, I mean... If the autarch were going to purge the insurrectionist thoughts, then he should have eliminated or expelled the exultants, since it seems, and Syriaca tells us this, that they were pretty reliably against the autarch. Yeah, the whole political, that that sort of side of the politics of the world that Wolf creates here, there's just not a whole lot going on, which is, that's why I feel like the way he was trying very intentionally, I think, to set up the politics of the world were of those sort of larger, a little bit more clear cut kinds of battles where it's like a king, a rebel, you know, mm -hmm. a bad guy force out there. Like that's pretty much what the what the things are. And so you don't really 
get the sort of messy sense of politics like we do today, not even yeah. with a tyrant and then the sort of, you know, real sort of pushback that you get. Like we get, we see Vodalus, right? The whole thing starts with a rebel, like seeing this rebellion, rebels, rebellious right. guy out there who identifies with, but there's no real sort of complicated sense of, okay, well, what does that actually mean if you're going to follow right. a, re a rebel? Yeah. So, so yeah, it is a kind of weird choice. Like this guy who had, was very involved in, you know, one of the biggest sort of world scale political messes of the 20th century with Stalin and the Soviet Union, you know, yeah, why, why him? Like, why, why yeah. start here? This particular poem, though, seems to sort of refer to that stuff. But it's not, it's certainly not the most political poem. Like I just kind of browsed through the book and there's plenty of other stuff he wrote that right. oh, yeah. could have done. This one is very much about memory and about, you know, seeing a tragedy, but then about how you'll last later and, you know, come up in. And then of course we get the sun and, and that's the thing too, right? Every one of these mm -hmm. little epigrams are about the sun in some way or another. And this one is about how the sun is sort of a memory that will come back in the future at some point, you know, it's like, you know, I dwindle, I will go unnoticed now because the world is moving beyond me. The horrible things I've seen, people are going to forget, but the memory will ultimately come back somehow in, in the strangest of ways. But then ultimately it'll come right in your face and be the most powerful thing you can't <laughs> escape. And that's the sun. That's right. Yeah, I'll rise from the dead and say, uh, the sun. You really kind of you do get the sense of the purges that are going on. Yeah. At the time when he wrote it. Yeah, and there's there's an inevitable sense too here of this thing that's coming back. Like the sun always rises again, right? And he says, you know, I will rise from the dead to say, you know, that's coming back. So even though it seems like whatever memory of this horrible thing of the mounds of human heads that may get lost and ignored and whatnot, but it will always eventually come back. So there's, there's kind of this sense of, uh, you know, I think it's supposed to be in a political sense, but it's also very much about sort of the last judgment day, right? Like the sun sure. is coming back to say, to shine light on the things that were horrible in the past that are not really forgotten. Yeah. So that's a lot to put in four little lines, but I think I think it's there. I mean, it definitely with the context of what he was going through, it totally makes sense. It's also more complicated than the other sun poems we get in the sense that here the sun is, I think, something that's going to, yeah, it's going to remind you of something. And I think the way he writes it with kind of big exclamation point at the end, at least in this version. Yeah, it's all about the sun is going to be some kind of final judgment that comes back, but it's also going to remind you of all this horrible stuff. So it's kind of like memory will bring all the awfulness back. That's not quite as happy of a sense of like the mm. new sun or the conciliator or right. you know, something where it's all just beautiful. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. This is a bit more, a bit more book of revelations maybe going <laughs> on here. Well, and it goes, we get the flavor of the lip, of Thrax in this, right? Mm -hmm. We get the mounds of heads. Severian is leaving. the The message of hope, the sun. Uh, you know, when I'm looking for outros, I feel a kinship to Wolf looking for these epigraphs. <laughs> and it's hard. There's a lot to put into these things. Just like when you really get into the lyrics of the songs that you pick up, mm -hmm. every time I try to, I'll, I'll always go read the lyrics to see what they are and look for all the different ways that it's going on and it just gets really complicated. Cause you're like, Oh, well, would we mean 
yeah i mean like, like, is <laughs> yeah. that song perfect for what we said here no of course not you know it's more it's it's fun so it's the same the thing with these it, right. yeah it's hard to to really push and say exactly what it is here but yep something about the sun being inevitable and gonna bring back all the memories that are lost and some of that's going to be dark and but it's it's still going to be brought to light in the end yeah uh, i think this by the way might be wolf's own personal translation of this poem yeah because i can't find it anywhere no one else seems to be able to find it anywhere that i you know on the internet or anything like that mm -hmm. we do have as you mentioned christian winman's translation from stolen air selected poems of Vasset mandelstam once you want to read that that might be interesting yeah this one's this one's different. Like this one doesn't have the same feel like the, it actually, to me, it seems like a very different poem. So it, this one starts mounds of human heads and mine among them unseen, unmarked, unmourned. But look in lines as cherished as a lover's scars in screams of children who play at wars. I rise with my hands of wind, my tongue of sun. I like Wolf's version better. I don't know how accurate it is. Yeah, I know. Or how they're... far Windman diverged from the original, but they're both pretty good in their own way. Yeah, yeah. And this one just doesn't, like the sun itself is not the thing. Like it's just my tongue of sun, which right. is different. Like I don't know quite what that means exactly. But, uh, but, but he, well, he's, my hands of wind. My right. Well, it's yeah. still, I, I do rise. I do rise. Right. And uh, there's a sense of there's death around and that I'm going to, to be one of them and no one's going to remember me, Yeah, mm. which actually yeah. is, is the, uh, his wife's memoirs kind of carry that sense too, of the writers feeling like, okay, I've died for nothing. Yeah. So that aspect of it too, is going to mesh much more closely with Dorcas right at the beginning, mm -hmm. like that about coming back or the memories of me. That's her thing. And in fact, the book there, yeah, the book, but all the chapter immediately starts with Dorcas speaking. So that's the context we get of somebody who is alive again, but not really right. Cause mm -hmm. she doesn't have her whole life and she's lost all those memories. Even if they were sad, she doesn't have them. And that's why she feels kind of unmoored right. from everything. So it doesn't, for her, some kind of rebirth without memory isn't really a rebirth. It's some kind of <laughs> curse in some sense. Yeah. So, yeah. So all those different, yeah, it's, it's bringing up all these different themes of memory and even resurrection in a sense, whether it's of memories or something else, but yeah, lots of stuff could be going on in there. Um, Wolf's version, the one that he picked is way more, I feel like straightforward. I, I definitely, the ending goes straight um, for it. Cause I'm like looking at this other one again and I'm like, yeah, it's like, like, because here his head is in there, whereas in the one we get. Yeah, it's not as good a fit anymore. Right. Yeah, just right. lots of different stuff, which makes you wonder how different the Russian really is. So, We should mention, too, that the tour version of Sword and Citadel, whether even with the tour essentials, it leaves off the um, epigraph for Citadel. Yes, yes. It is not in there. So if you've only ever read it in those, you're missing. Yeah, it seems to be somewhat of a mystery for why that is. Yeah, and I just still think it's strange that they didn't fix that with Sword and Citadel. I mean, that would have been a pretty easy thing to notice, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Well, didn't they misspell Gene Wolfe's name on every other page? I can't remember. I uh, was it? Was it? Oh, let me see. Um, <laughs> I got both versions here. I'm checking. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, the, is it in? Yep. In uh, it's there's no E. Right. Yeah. 
in the new one. Yep. So the the tourist central. So they weren't all that careful. Yeah. This was this was done. There were a few things that were overlooked there. Yep. So and also, did we mention on the show? We I I know we were talking about it, but also how they flipped the picture, like the tour essentials version has a flipped version of Mace's picture. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't. I don't know. Maybe someone decided that it made more sense. Yeah, I don't no know idea. what the the yeah. rules are for that sort of thing. But normally, you actually now I think about it. Normally, don't you move things over to the to the right bottom? But so in which case that was kind of that was kind of weird. That was counterintuitive. Yeah, and I don't know if it's because of they Cause they had that to the left now. The left, yeah. And I don't know if it's because they like the graphic where the. Where Wolf's name is a little bit lower, and that that may have helped. That, that may have been why yeah. we need to make room yep. for that wolf. So. so, all right, shall we begin? We go chapter one, Master of the House of Chains. All right. So, at first, we don't really know how long Severian and Dorcas have traveled to reach Thrax. We don't know how long Severian has been at his duties. Uh, for the traveling, I think it's been as much as two months since they arrived. He he refers to the first few weeks uh, since they started, suggesting that it's been longer than you know a few weeks, mm-hmm. uh, maybe six weeks since he arrived. And we'll keep our eyes peeled for clues for the time of year. If, if it is, as I think, the Feast of Holy Catherine is the first full moon after the vernal equinox, then perhaps we're going to get some clues uh, to the time of year. Yeah. And he definitely seems like he's settled into his job. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's definitely a lot more time has passed here than passed between right. the first two books. So we are in Thrax, the city of windowless rooms. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a town set far to the north of Nessus, reached roughly by following the Guile north and then taking the Asus River off, I think, to the east or west, one of these. Uh, Thrax is located at a huge waterfall system. Severian actually stops to give us some actual expository information on Thrax. So we're confused about time, but not really about location. Mm -hmm. Thrax is a crooked dagger entering the heart of the mountains. It lies in a narrow defile of the valley of the Aces and extends it up to Aces Castle. The Harena. Uh, Harena is an old Latin word, possibly Etruscan, but essentially it's a stadium for events like, you know, rodeos or gladiators. So the word means both arena and sand, I guess, for like the sandy dirt ground in the center of the arena. It's a city big enough to have have a big coliseum. Right. Yeah. So so he says the Harena or Harena, the Pantheon. A Pantheon is a temple dedicated to all gods. I think. Think of it as a, like a non-denominational community church. Yep. So the Harena, the Pantheon, and the other public buildings occupy all the level land between the castle and the wall called the Capulus. Capulus is a really interesting word, which might be why Wolf chose to call it out as the term for the fortification wall. In biology, it refers to a, a shell. So this is the wall around the, the, the fortress part of the city. It's a shell. In weaponry, it's the hilt and handle of a sword. And when we get to the etymology of the castle's name, that's going to be a pretty sweet metaphor. In architecture, it's a sarcophagus or tomb. So we have a connection here, having gone from a tomb in the Stone Town to a tomb in Thrax. Yep. 
So in the other public buildings that closes the lower end of the narrow section of the valley. The valley that's referred to is the Aces Valley, but we're going to get to that. The private buildings of the city climb the cliffs to either side, and many are in large measure dug into the rock itself, from which practice Thrax gains one of its sobriquets. Is it sobriquets? Sobriquets? I never remember. The city. I, I've said sobriquets. <laughs> that's, that's how I'll say it. So the or city sobriquets, of, even. I've so, said yeah, that. Exactly. The city of windowless rooms. A sobriquet, a sobriquet <laughs> is a nickname. Yep. And this whole thing about building into the rocks makes me think of like Greek towns a little bit where, you know, they, they built in them. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's really more like a can in a canyon. He calls it yeah. a valley, but it's kind yep. of a canyon. A canyon, yeah. So its prosperity it owes to its position at the head of the navigable part of the river. At Thrax, all goods ship north on the Aces. Uh, the Aces River. Yeah. So all goods ship north on the Aces, many of which have traversed nine-tenths of the length of Guile before entering the mouth of the smaller river. The Aces River. Like Yeah, like the Guile endearing into the right. Aces, which may indeed be Guile's true source. Those goods must be unloaded and carried on the backs of animals if they are to travel farther. Conversely, the hetmans of the mountain tribes. A hetman is a Polish term for a commander or leader. The hetmans of the mountain tribes and the landowners of the region who wish to ship their wool and corn to the southern towns bring them to take boat at Thrax, below the cataract that roars through the arched spillway of Aces Castle. A cataract is, of course, a waterfall. Yep. So, so. yeah. So let's, let's take these terms from smaller to bigger. The Aces Castle. Aces is Latin for edge or sharpness. In Lexicon Earthus, it's translated sword point. So we have the wall along the southern side of Thrax fortification. That is the capulus. It's the sword handle and, and hilt. And then there's the, the castles. Uh, that's the blade. But Severian calls the river valley a crooked knife. And in the next chapter, Severian is going to double down on the knife metaphor. So I do think this is what is intended. He says that the crooked knives of the Eclectics is not only emblematic of their culture and the region, but also the city of Thrax itself. He says, I have described these knives in detail because they are characteristic of the region as anything can be said to be, and because it is from them that Thrax takes another of its names, the City of Crooked Knives. There is also the resemblance of the plan of the city to the blade of such a knife, the curve of the defile corresponding to the curve of the blade, the river Aces to the central rib, Aces Castle to the point, and the Capulus to the line at which the steel vanishes into the half. Now, the river and the valley that the river flows through is called the Asus. And this is a tough one. Asus was a beautiful shepherd, not of Greece, but of Sicily. Uh, but, you know, Sicily and Greek mythology and classical history, this was all common culture in ancient times. Anyway, Asus and the Nereid Galatea were lovers, and the Cyclops Polyphemus, the same one that Odysseus blinded, he was jealous, so he crushed the cocky interloper with a big rock. And Galatea caused his blood to form the river Asus or Asinius, a uh, modern-day river Jassi, at the base of Mount Etna. And the names sort of suggest Asia to the north, but it's not really that close, I think. I'm going to take a stab. 
that the river is derived from aces uh, for the sharpness or cutting. Uh, frankly, uh, that's the best I got. And that's that's a kind of like place name thing that actually is trying to make some consistency with the different mm-hmm. names, which I don't think Wolf ever cares about in other places. <laughs> no, seriously, like it, it might well be here. Like obviously Aces and Aces, you know, he's made some kind of regional connections there, but that never happens. Like in the other other parts, yeah. we get like, you know, the North Gate, like what North Gate or the East right. Gate, like what, you know, it's, it's like he intentionally wanted things to be a little murky Off. in other places, but Weird. something yeah. here, something about this part of the book, the geography, I feel like it settles a little bit and you can start to map things out a little bit more easily. Yeah. So. Well, there's this sense of, of the AC's river being formed by an act of violence, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's a violent yeah. area. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. It works very well for Severian and yeah. the violence of violence of what he's doing here. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Thrax. Thrax is not really a place name. It's a it's an adjective or a title. It means Thracian from, you know, being from Thrace. Thrace. Thrace gets its name from the people who were the Thraki. Uh, the Ottomans referred to the area as the Rumeli, the land of the Romans. It is the name of one of the sons of Ares, but more importantly, it's the name of Ares himself, the Thracian, because he was considered the patron god of Thrace. And there was a well-known temple to Ares in the city of Bristonia in Thrace. His golden or maybe just gilded shield was kept there. Also, Thrax, the slightly different spelling, is a word for a type of Roman gladiator, now, this seems like a good lead because a threx, threx, uh, threx, uh, it's it, T-H-R-A-E-X. It, he, he, these gladiators carried a small shield or circular shield called a permula and some other distinguishing equipment. And this is good. He carried a sika, a short version of the falx, a curved sword with the edge on the inside of the curve, like a sickle or a scythe. The purpose of this curved sword is to work around and stab the exposed back of your opponent. But why this is a good lead, Craig, is that Latro carried a falx mm-hmm. and was a Roman and is associated in the book with of uh, the Soldier of the Mist with Ares. And Thrace is the land of the Romans. So Latro in the Soldier series is essentially a Threx. Threx. <laughs> Threx. I don't know. Let's see. There's also Dionysus Thrax, uh, the second century Greek grammarian whose writings form the foundation of the entire Western grammatical tradition. That's cool, but it doesn't get us anywhere. Uh, Maximus Thrax, who became emperor of the Roman Empire after Emperor Severus was murdered by his own troops. This was the beginning of the 50-year-long crisis of the third century in which the Roman Empire nearly collapsed and it ended the classical period. Honestly, I don't think it was the fault of Maximus Thrax, you know, the first emperor who was neither of the senatorial or equestrian class. As far as I can tell, he did a decent job for the three years he was emperor and alive. The problem was that in Rome, doing a decent job was not sufficient, and the city of Rome resisted him. His advances stagnated, and his soldiers, a petulant lot, killed him, his son and his advisors, and put their heads on poles. Anyway. None of us gets to why this city is called Thrax. No, but the one thing I think about 
is Thrace. And Thrace is like the northeastern part of Greece. And it's the part of Greece, it, it's where the barbarians start to come around a bit more because <laughs> it's where you're you're on the edge of Hellenistic society. I'm, I'm talking mm. about like ancient Greece. And so it's a borderland is in ancient Greece, Thrace was like one of the last, you know, it was not exactly an outpost, but it's like you got the Turkish to the, the east and mm-hmm. you've got, um, you know, whatever Eastern Europe was at the time. I forget how it was, but, you know, you're on the borders of the Hellenistic world. And Thrace here is definitely something of a border town because we quickly start to get that. Oh, yeah, this is the part where, you know, everybody's aware that sort of beyond Thrace is the wild area where the autochthons go and the zoanthropes and all that kind of thing where the eclectics where there are, there's no rules after that. Yep. Right. Getting away from quote unquote civilized society. And so this is like the last, we, I don't know if it's the last, but it's one of the last and presumably I think one of the biggest or the last biggest cities before you get up into, I don't know, the wilderlands of the North or something like that. So to, have it connected to Thrace. That's similar to how the ancient Greeks might have thought of Thrace. So mm, yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe that actually works. That's not bad. I have another one. I have another one. Okay. The name Thrax comes from, I say, the waterfalls. I think it's shortened from cataracts, waterfalls. I I see it kind of derived the same way Nessus came from Buenos Aires and Gael comes from Uruguay River, uh, so says I. And mapping Thrax onto South America, either actually or elusively, means that these waterfalls should be well north of Buenos Aires by roughly following the Uruguay River and then split off that main river to a lesser one to arrive there. And I think we do find it that way. The Iguazu Falls, by some metrics, is the largest waterfall complex in the world. You follow the Uruguay north and then turn west at the Iguazu River. Uh, you know, again, I would prefer if Iguazu had some connection to Aces, but, you know, what can I say? I'm doing my best here. <laughs> also, ideally, the Stone Town would be found somewhere well south of the Iguazu Falls, but north of Salto, Uruguay. But honestly, I, I don't have a candidate for that right now. Uh, if there's an actual location, it's, it's probably some national park or something built on an ancient temple or complex. I, but I don't know what that would be. This is the danger of the internet, folks. You <laughs> find too many possible associations. And, yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's start with the story. Yeah, so because we the chapter doesn't start with a description of Thrax. We're just doing no. some setting here. It starts instead with, like I said before, Dorcas speaking. Yes. Uh, uh, we enter Sword of Lictor in Media Res, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dorcas and Severian are in the middle of a conversation. Uh, Wolf doesn't let, clue us in to what it's the first part of this conversation is about. Dorcas has been telling Severian some kind of story, which ends with, it was in my hair, Severian. Mm-hmm. And she's in the hot stone room. It's ever explained what the stone room is uh, maybe it's a kind of shower uh, since the core of earth is solid there shouldn't be any geological cause for hot stones but so apparently they you know heat them in another way maybe uh yeah i don't know she's standing yeah. under the waterfall so the first thing we get here is dorcas who's afraid of water standing in water and in this media res introduction is a small thing but i think it's both gutsy and savvy on wolf's part a normal writer would feel like he needed to have enough of the story clarified to explain what it was in Dorcas's hair, not Wolf. 
it is only there for a reason for Dorcas to be under the waterfall, so it seems. So people can't see her and she can't hear them. And then she comes out of the waterfall and she hears them talking about her. There's actually uh, more to it than that. Wolf is hiding the ball to us. He's going to have a big reveal at the end of this chapter. Yeah. But also, too, this is a bit more straightforward than kind of starting with a dream like we kind of get. Like, <laughs> I guess so, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, on the other hand, you know, we want to understand this chapter as we go. So I think we should spoil Wolf's ending of this chapter. Mm -hmm. What is in her hair is the smell of the vincula. The vincula, by the way, is plural for vinculum, which is from Latin meaning a bond or a tie, uh, or to expand it a bit, a chain and shackle. And that is basically what they call the prison. It's truly upset her on more than one level. And uh, one is, you know, the morality of it. And the other is, I think, that it evokes uh, her, her own death and burial. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yep. So she goes back into the waterfall and every time she steps out, she can hear them talking about her. Right. But they're talking about her in relation to Severian and she doesn't like the way they talk about him. Ultimately, it is unsaid, but they are talking about the fact that Dorcas, you know, doesn't like the way Severian's job causes people to see him. She doesn't like the job itself. Uh, it was, you know, fine before when they were out in the country. Yep. Stepping back to see the force uh, before we look at the trees, Dorcas doesn't like Severian's job. Mm -hmm. She liked him better as a carnifex, personally chopping off heads. Now there are a lot of people and she's just seen them all. And Severian has seen the tunnels, but he's not even really considered the people. They are incidental problems for security, which is, you know, what he's been focused on. And they sleep over the prison. They are essentially in a tower with an oubliette below them. Yep. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, the women call Severian the black butcher and other things. Remember that the word Madichin is Spanish for butcher. Uh, yes, I know. It means other things, too. Also in the Book of the Long Sun, the Patiras are called butchers by the irreligious. Uh, maybe we're going to get there one day. <laughs> um, Severian is trying to resolve her anxiety without success. And he's going about it, I'm going to say, in the wrong way, assuming there is a right way. He starts with, well, well, of course, those silly women talk about you, gossip about you. You're probably the first stranger to come here in a month. <laughs> There's so much above them is basically his first argument. And this is a signal that they've, again, that we've been, they've been here, you know, not very long. Maybe even he's saying they've, they've only been here, you know, less than a month. Maybe a month. Yeah. And also he tells her that she should, you know, take the gossip as a compliment. He says, you know, the few women who knew who you were, were proud of it. And perhaps they'll tell some tales, you know, and he says, look, I was raised to this sort of talk about me. You probably heard people calling me these things on the way here. I assure you, I heard them. And she says, yes, she admitted, and sat down on the sill of the embrasure. In the city below, the lamps of the swarming shops were beginning to fill the valley of the Asus with a yellow radiance like the petals of a jonquil, but she did not seem to see them. Okay, uh, an embrasure is an opening that you might see in a fortress. Uh, the sides angle out on the inside. 
So the opening from the outside is is small, but you have room inside to maneuver around and direct your fire in all directions. Uh, essentially, it's a shooty hole mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, suggests that you know this particular area was the, the, and building was designed to be uh, a fortress and yep. to resist attack. Right. Um, a jonquil is a slightly it's it's slightly different from a daffodil, but they are essentially the same thing. According to Michael Andre Drisi's chapter guide, it means it symbolizes "I desire to return your affection," but she doesn't see it, right? She doesn't see the yellow petals of the jonquil that Severian is referring. So that means things are not good for Dorcas and Severian. Yep. I have an alternate idea. Okay. Jonquils, daffodils, narcissus—these are all in the genus Narcissus. In one reference, I read that the narcissists are, are in fact, daffodils. We've had a, a reference to narcissists before in the chapter of the Odalisk of Abaya when Severian was talking to the Undyne. Of course, narcissists became enraptured with his own reflection and drowned. In this case, it is Dorcas that is not recognizing her reflection. Mm-hmm. Her trip to the Vincula has evoked her time at the bottom of the Lake of Birds, and she's so upset that she had to wash it off. She's terrified of water. She's so terrified she only takes sponge baths. But now, here, she gets right under the water to wash it off. I also like that not recognizing the flower is so different from how she just seems to reach out and immediately put everything in her hair. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, yeah, there it is. Like she's also washing something out of her hair rather than finding that flyer and putting it in. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a cool moment, which. That, that's just a little tiny detail. You're probably not going <laughs> to remember from first time you see it. Also, uh, let's see, the Valley of Asus, uh, outside of the fortress, this seems to be the market area of the city. And because the lamps are coming out, we can assume that this is the end of the day. Severian has just ended a long, boring day of torturing, only to come home to the complaining little woman about the progress of his career, and that this big promotion is not nearly as nice as when he was just a guy cutting off heads as a contractor. So, And as, of course, just to keep spoiling things, as we're going to find out, it's really, in the end, not about Severian, right? It's, no, it's, it's not it's about Severian. Everything else is going on, and it's more about what's going on inside Dorcas. Well, she's also more, she is morally repulsed by the setting. Of oh, yeah. This yeah. Vincula. I think, I think that's and part I think of there's it. a good reason for it, actually. Uh, we can get into that yeah. in a minute, but. Yep. Um, and it's also doing the thing of, of reminding us again, how Severian is sort of over-professionalized about this and mm-hmm. the him, right. He, he's just been trained not to see this as a bad thing. It's just his job. Right? Well, I also think he's, he's, He's 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 working to be blind mm-hmm. as well. I mean, I I know that the Morwenna's execution is a matter of debate, but I personally think that he is upset by Morwenna's execution. Jonas seems to see it, and he acts like oh, I'm not bothered at all. No, and all is he, he comes off as a bit petulant when Jonas tries to you know comfort him. Yeah. And, and soon after he does leave, right, he is going to start to say this was something that he chose. Like he really did. Yeah. That right. when he saves Syriaca, we're going to see him make a decision that goes against everything else exactly. uh, that he's saying here. But yeah, but it's sort of reminding you like the way the setup of this book is, it's reminding you, oh, yeah, Severian professional dude. And at this point, at least in this moment of this discussion, 
he is definitely taking up the side of it's just my job. It's what I yeah, do. This I'm is, used yeah. to it. It's okay. I do it for pay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just don't understand. Yep. You, yep. yeah, you're over too, overly emotional about this whole thing. In fact, he puts the gossip about Dorcas right back on her. And this is routine for these arguments between that a man has with a woman. But I can assure you, kids, it never ends well. <laughs> and uh, he explains that this is why the guild says he's not allowed to take a wife. They don't have to be celibate, but he can't marry. But if Dorcas is adamant about that ring on her finger, he's told her over and over that he'll break the rules for it. He's so <laughs> nice. What he wants, though, is for Dorcas not to live in Thrax itself. He'll work, and once or twice a week, she'll come in, or she'll just wait until he can get away. And he says... That's the way it's usually done. And eventually he thinks those ladies talking about Dorcas and him will think maybe it's best not to make an enemy of the local law enforcement in town. I love how he ends that because it's not just about that. But then he says, um, and eventually the women who talked about us today will realize that sometime they or their sons or husbands may find themselves beneath my hand. So there's even a bit of like. (laughs) you know, saying like, yeah, lucky I, you, I, I can, I right. can make this right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So of sort of, yeah, just totally abusing his power. You might say. Yeah. So. And Dorcas uh, says, but don't you see, this is all besides the point. The thing is, and, and she peters off. I think she's trying to say that she doesn't care about revenge or respect, but maybe she's trying to say something else. I think she's trying to get to the point that there's something off about this job of his and, that there's something off about herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, she gets up and paces, one arm clasping the other. Uh, Severian says he's never seen her do this before, and he says, I found it disturbing. Uh, so are we supposed to get something from this imagery? Of her walking around sort of feeling. Cla- right, clasping yeah. her arm. He, he's, he, fi- he, says he, he, he literally says, I found it disturbing. Like there was something... Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, like she, as though it's out of character or as though it suggests something else going yeah. on. I don't know. Yeah. And that he could tell that there is something truly bothering her, that it's not, yeah. it's not just these routine things that always come up with, you know, with wives and whatnot. Yeah. There's, he is sensitive enough to know that something else is going on. Yeah. yeah. So Varian tries to inject reason into this frustrating conversation. He says, Look, I've been doing this work the whole journey here. Every time we stopped in a town, what's different now? I hired myself out to towns and county justices, and I know you watched from a window several times. So although we don't know how long it's, you know, it took him to get the Thrax, he stopped and performed executions more than several times. Several events like the one in Saltus. And she counters, well, I didn't watch. And he counters, ta-da! I recall seeing you. And she says, no, I didn't watch. Sometimes I waved at you when you jumped onto the scaffold. But when you were actually doing the work, she says, I went inside or covered my eyes. Without relaying you know, the back and forth, Dorcas seems to be trying to say that when he was a mere carnifex, he was doing honest work. He said that of the condemned man and the hieromonic on the scaffold with him, he was the only honest person on the platform. A hieromonarch is a, is a monk who is also a priest in the Earth, Eastern Orthodox Church. But now he's not doing that basic honest work. His work is industrial. He oversees the misery of 1,600 men. And for most of it, you know, he doesn't lift a finger. 
And she says, I've been down below. I've seen the people chained to the tunnels. And this kind of suggests that maybe Severian hasn't. There's some things that suggest that maybe he has, but I get a lot of suggestions that his work has been purely theoretical. He sent Dorcas down to review the tunnels, and he hasn't actually seen them. Or that if he was doing it, there's still the sense that he was only worried about the sort of bureaucratic administrative side of things and was he was looking at the architecture and not the people yeah Yeah, maybe yeah and she says when we sleep tonight you and i in our soft bed will be sleeping on top of them it's like a mass grave which of course is going to be a loaded word for her right so a grave because yeah so, so yeah, maybe he's maybe he's only looked at the maps, or, or this might be more of a situation where, uh, like with Vodalus and the cannibalism, he's only thinking about this matter in the total abstract. Yeah. And I want to say too, it's not like it's easy to look at this conversation as Dorcas is outraged by his job, and he's just too caught up in it to see. That could be. I also think there's a strong sense here that Dorcas isn't just generally ethically concerned about the job all this stuff reminds her of her own death too of her being dead like that's that's i think that evokes but i think but i think there's a good reason for why she is horrified at the conditions in the vincula and Mm -hmm. the way it works Uh, he is a variant however he you know he just says look these people were already here when i got here Mm -hmm. you say it's a mass grave so what do you want the archon to release them who's gonna resurrect the people they killed I, I yeah. you know, I think this is a dishonest answer, Craig, uh, because Severian probably has not reviewed the case against any of them. And even if he did, in fact, probably the vast majority of them are not there for murder. Yeah. And, you know, then he's even more unfair. He goes, you don't know what it's like for the victims' families. You've never lost anyone, have you? Yeah, which is. Yeah. Yeah. That's a rough thing to say because. She has lost everyone just in it. She's lost her memory. She doesn't know if she's lost anyone, right? In in a sense, as you say, she's -hmm. she's Mm -hmm. lost everybody. Yeah. Uh, But more than that, you know, Severian's never lost anyone either, except his mother. For all he knows, he lost her to someone like himself. Is she a murderer? Yeah. He's he's taking the role of Mr. Empathy, but really, he's never felt sorry for anyone in his life except Thecla. And he didn't do anything for her except help her kill herself. Also, you know, although maybe she never lost anyone, maybe she has. I mean, there's a possibility that she lost a child, that she died in childbirth. Could be. Yep. Still, the, you know, the people she's loved did lose someone, her. And she lost a whole life, like you said. I, so he goes on. He says, ask the wives and mothers and sisters of the men our prisoners have left rotting in the high country, whether they should be let go. And she says, only myself, and blew out the candle. Uh, you know, it's unclear to me here, Craig, whether Dorcas is saying that she's only asking herself about whether the prisoners should be let go, or if she's saying she wants to be released herself. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah, that, that's that's an ambiguous mm-hmm. uh, line right there. Mm-hmm. Severian also mentions the Archon's name, Abdesius. Saint Abdesius was also called Hebed Jesus. He was a deacon among the Christians in Persia. There was a crackdown on the Christians by King Shapur II, and he was executed in 342, along with many others. 
How he died is not said. Uh, as with these cases, there was apparently a smorgasbord of demonstrations. A woman executed along with him named uh, Tarbula was sawed in half. And Severian notes that this area is lawless and violent. So, you know, many of the men in the Vincula likely are murdering robbers, but probably not all, and probably not all are guilty. So he says, as must always be the case when a stronghold imposes the rule of law over a turbulent region, the administration of justice was the chief concern of the archon of the city. To impose his will on those without the walls, who might otherwise have opposed it, he could call upon seven squadrons of Demarchi, each under its own commander. Court convened each month from the first appearance of the new moon to the full, beginning with a second morning watch and continuing as long as necessary to clear the day's docket. As chief executor of the Archon's sentences, I was required to attend these sessions so that he might be assured that the punishments he decreed should be made neither softer nor more severe by those who might otherwise have been charged with transmitting them to me, and to oversee the operation of the vincula in which the prisoners were detained, in all its details. It was a responsibility equivalent on a lesser scale to that of Master Gerlo's in our citadel, and during the first few weeks I spent in Thrax, it weighed heavily upon me. Hmm. Severian is becoming Gerlo. Yep. How interesting. <laughs> this yep. is like, you know, the choice between a dying earth and a new sun. Um, <laughs> oh, I should mention Archon. Uh, an Archon in Athens was one of the nine principal magistrates, judges. Uh, it could be any authoritative uh, leader. But in Gnosticism, an Archon are the like the angels of the increate who create the uh, create the, the universe under him, the universe that is less perfect and broken. Yep. And under them, the archons uh, create the next universe in there within that universe, less perfect, more broken. And it, and so it continues. Which I kind of like archon being a name for like a lower I don't know if you called him a mayor or something, or it's more feudal than, than like someone who's elected. Right. But right. It's um, like a judge though. He's been assigned yeah. to be the judge over, you know, a, a, like in, in judge dread, I'm more like any, yeah. Than, yeah. Anything that's else. probably more like that than anything else. So, um, but yeah, so there is this sense that if it, if it does carry that Gnostic weight, that it's, it's not a good thing, right? Like it's not yeah. like a, you know, there's no, nothing necessarily really noble about it. So right. it's a well-chosen word. So uh, essentially, the Archon is leading a war out here against the local cu culture that is formed by the opposing armies to the north and south and uh, cultural ethic that is essentially possession is 100% of the law. Uh, regarding security, Severian recalls a saying of Gerlo's that no prison is ideally situated. In other words, there's no escape-proof prison. Right. And Severian says, like most of the wise tags put forward for the edification of young men, it was inarguable and unhelpful. <laughs> <laughs> so Severian lists the three general methods of escape. I don't know if he was taught this or if there was a library in Thrax or, or what. The three categories of escape are by stealth, by violence, or by treachery uh, of those set as guards. So to prevent an escape by stealth, sneaking out somehow, the best solution is to put the prison in a place far away from everything else. That way, if they sneak out, they've got nowhere to go. Yeah. 
I like this too because we haven't really had like tidbits from the torturer's <laughs> lessons in a while right. towards the second <laughs> half of Claw. But yeah, we start with a few more of those here. Okay, that mean, yeah, that's a good point. There's a little book on uh, on to give us insight into you know the textbooks that yeah. Sidarian's been studying all these years. <laughs> the problem with the with putting a prison in a remote place like deserts or mountaintops, distant islands, these make you exposed to escape by violence. Maybe a band of killers attack the prison. Help is too far away. And, you know, it makes it hard to staff the place with a lot of guards. Imagine has the guards living in the prison, but the more protection you have, the more food you have to cart in. And if you aren't attacked from the outside, but instead the prisoners revolt, you've got the same problem, right? Yep. But then you don't put the prison in a remote place. You put it in a well-populated place with lots of guards for protection and staffing. But now you don't need a thousand allies attacking the prison. You need only a couple or even one. This is escape by treachery. They can get him outside the walls and you can immediately mingle with the population. And remember that in the Commonwealth, they don't have TV or radio to issue, you know, be on the lookout notices. The <laughs> only way to get escapees is not hunters and hounds. You have to use, in that case, agents and informers. And so he keeps going on that. He says, in our own case, a detached prison in a remote location would have been out of the question, even if it had been provided with a sufficient number of troops in addition to its clavagers. Uh, clavagers or jailers. I think we've mentioned that term before. In addition to its clavagers, to fend off the attacks of the autochthons, zoanthropes, and cultilar who roam the countryside. And this is the first time we officially get The term zoanthrope. Yeah, I think only zoanthrope has not been introduced yet. Mm -hmm. Octathons are the descendants of the so-called original inhabitants of the yep. Commonwealth. I, yep. I say so-called because, you know, this is deep time. We don't know how many waves of cultures have blown over the continent since our time. And since I think it's safe to imagine them like stereotypically Amazonian peoples. I think that's what he's going for, yeah. Yeah. A cultilar is a cutthroat or bandit. And a zoanthrope is someone who has had a doctor cut out the rational part of the brain and made himself into someone uh, intelligent, but unthinking animal. Right. Yeah. And he'll give a whole explanation of that to little Severian in a while. Yeah. So, and he says, even if it had been provided with a sufficient number of troops, in addition to its clavigers, not to mention the armed retinues of the petty exultants who could never be relied upon. Here we get an interesting notation of class. Not all exultants are rich or powerful enough to be considered a peer of the autarch's court. Yep. There are petty exultants who contract as muscle for the local authorities. And notice how as Severian moves north, the number and variety of exultants increases. The closer you get to Askia, uh, Thecla's villa is on Lake Diaturna. And the exultants, for whatever reason, are simply unreliable in a serious fight. But Severian says that even if the Vincula had been provided with enough forces to staff and protect the prison, you still need an army who escorts supply trains to keep the resources from you know, being robbed on the way. So the Vincula had to be located inside the city. And he says specifically, it's located halfway up the cliffside on the West Bank and a half league or so 
from the Capulus. So inside the city, but not in the fortress and not easily besieged because it's basically hanging above ground. It is of ancient design and always appeared to me to have been intended as a prison from the beginning, though there is a legend to the effect that it was originally a tomb and was only a few hundred years ago enlarged and converted to its new purpose. Uh, so it's outside the Capulus, but we get that tomb reference, right? And a new thing 300 years ago. Yeah. So um, to an observer on the more commodious East Bank, it appears to be a rectangular bartizan jutting from the rock, a bartizan four stories high at the side he sees, whose flat Merlin roof terminates against the cliff. Okay. A bartizan is a small overhanging turret on a wall or tower. Imagine a bay window. Now imagine the bay window is pulled out from the building so that it has on, not only a floor, but also a roof. The vincula is built jutting out from the cliff so that it can, cannot be attacked from the valley. You have to access it you know, from whatever limited access is available. And remember, the windows are embrasures. It's designed like a fortress against attack. And a Merlin roof, it has battlements on top, like a medieval castle. Yep. This visible portion of the structure, which many visitors to the city must take for the whole of it, is in fact the smallest and least important part. At the time I was lictor, it held no more than our administrative offices, a barracks for the clavagers, and my own living quarters. The prisoners were lodged in a slanted shaft bored into the rock. Yeah. So the prisoners are not kept in cells like the Madachin, and they aren't detained in common rooms like the antechamber. They're all chained to the walls in a single shaft by thick iron collars, 1,600 of them. Yeah. This is this cruel harsh. system. Yeah. Even crueler than the Madachin was probably what so perturbed Dorcas, you know, with the length of chain and prisoners on each side, the staff still... It, has enough room to walk in the shaft, um, you know, two abreast without anyone being able to get at them. And he says that the shaft is 500 paces long. That's 1,250 feet. That's 381 meters, almost a quarter of a mile. But with 1,600 prisoners, if they're all in that shaft, 800 on each side, that's one prisoner for every one and a half feet. Yeah, which I, I, we're, we're getting back to that sort of almost unimaginable kind of size i feel like you know yeah and it's it's just where the scale of things is starting to just be yeah intense yeah i don't think actually that all of the prisoners are in that shaft they seem to be in some of the other things that will uh you know corridors that we'll, we'll mention yeah, but, but still, still. <laughs> it's ugly yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, he says that there are over a thousand spots for prisoners uh, but dorcas says that there are 1600 and if the prisoners have one and a half feet to spare you know lord help them uh, when all the spots are full. However, it's, it's it's not quite that simple as you're going to see in a minute. The water for the vincula is provided by a cistern that sunk into the stone at the top of the cliff in order to keep the shaft relatively clean. And whenever the cistern gets nearly full, they dump the water and flush the shaft. And, you know, the end of the shaft is a sewer where the water and waste run out. The water runs down a conduit in the Capula wall. He calls it the wall of the Capulus. So maybe the Capulus is not only the wall, but the area, you know, behind it, but uh, up to where you where the castle starts. Anyway, the water is carried to a conduit built into the wall of the fortress, and it dumps into the Aces River on its way to the Guile and out of their city. 
basically, this is not so much a t- prison as a toilet basin. Yeah. Yep. That's yeah. pretty much the implication you get when you read all this stuff. That I feel like is what it's all kind of pointing up to. Like it's mm-hmm. all the other stuff about, yep, it's a city and whatnot. And then this is the last little bit of torture. <laughs> basically, <laughs> that once you realize how this thing is set up, it's horrific. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Awful. And we're going to, that, that, my guess would be that that may not, like all this sort of description stuff, people may stop to really try to picture some of it, but it's probably, it, it comes clear when Severian tries to escape later on. Like then you get a much better sense of what the place is actually like, I feel yeah. like, from what he's describing here. But yeah, that's that's pretty much the only thing you can conclude. Yeah. So Severian figures that originally the rectangular Bartizan part clinging to the cliff and the singular shaft was the original design of the Vincula. However, over time, people would attempt to free prisoners by digging additional shafts from the other houses that are built on the cliff. And then the prison authorities built their own parallel mines so that they could guard against attempts to dig toward the shafts. And these shafts are now used as part of the prison. So you, you see all the prisoners are not in the shaft. The, th- yeah. the thousand spots probably refers to only the shaft portion. This is a complicated level of dig dug. Is what yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all these random shafts are, from Severian's point of view, a security risk. Mm-hmm. So he's initiated a plan to fill unused passages and widen and tie together the passages that they are using. And he says, in such a way as to eventually achieve a rational structure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's done by... 100 prisoners at a time, which is not enough for the work to be done quickly. It's not like, you know, they're even in great physical condition. So that's all he does uh, as far as this for the first few weeks after Dorcas and I arrived in the city. Um, My duties left me time for nothing else. It it looks like he gave her the job of inspecting the tunnels of the Vincula directly. Like I said, I think maybe it appears he's never inspected the whole thing. And this is important. He does not seem to even have seen much of the Vincula as she has. And then he assigned her the job to look for the Pellerines after that for where they are, because he still intends to return the claw. It's his knight errand. Yep, it is kind of that. And that's the first glimpse we get here of sort of, okay, what's the what are we going to do now? Like he, he made it to Thrax. What's the story going to be now? And we know Dorcas is unhappy and he mentions this. So this book starts in some way similar to how Claw starts where we're like, wait, he's working. What are we doing? Mm -hmm. I thought we were on a, you know, a journey somewhere, but now he's to the place where he was supposed to have gone. So we gotta, we gotta figure out what's going to motivate him. And this is one of a few things a little bit, but anyway, he says on the long journey from Nessus, The knowledge that I carried the claw of the conciliator had been a heavy burden. Now, when I was no longer traveling and could no longer attempt to trace the pelerines along the way, or even reassure myself that I was walking in a direction that might eventually bring me in contact with them, it became an almost unbearable weight. While we were traveling, I'd slept under the stars with the gem in the top of my boot, and with it concealed in the toe on those few occasions when we were able to stop beneath a roof. Now I found that I could not sleep at all unless I had it with me, so I could assure myself whenever I woke in the night that I retained possession of it. Dorcas sewed a little sack of doe skin for me to hold it, and I wore it about my neck day and night. 
Ah, uh, the doe skin sack that he keeps the claw in. Yeah. So we'll, and just one this thing. This is a real I think, problem, Craig. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But one thing too, I feel like that passage is very, very, very obviously resonant of the ring um, of just like having to have it with you all the time. Mm-hmm. My and, precious. And, yeah. And literally wearing it around your neck, just like Frodo does. Like they're, that's very much a nod here because then it's going to, of course, become something that's not at all like the ring in, in very differently. Like I, exactly. I, I do yeah. feel like there is a lot about how the claw works that he's intentionally playing with the ring. Um, is he playing of, with our expectations? I think a little there's bit. Something yeah. sinister I think, about the claw. Maybe, maybe that it could be something like that's, I feel like when you read this and then that's what you got to kind of think, like once you notice how similar it is, but it's, it's supposed to be a good thing. It should raise questions about it. Um, and it kind of has to get destroyed, but it's the, it's the quest thing, right? Like we have right. to return it somewhere. So, you know, it's very similar, but I think, feel like he intentionally does that because of ultimately how it's going to be something totally different from what the ring was and the quest for the ring and the claw is very different but yeah yeah, this is just one of those nods i think right there to be like yep don't worry i know what i'm doing (laughs) it's like i'm very aware this is a this is kind of similar um but there's a there's a point to it exactly yeah so you want to talk about that doe skin sack yeah because that is that's a yeah that's That's a a problem, problem right Yep. Severian is going to refer to this sack that holds the claw 11 more times in this volume, at least once in Citadel of the Autark, six times in Earth of the New Sun. Most of the time, he does not refer to the materials. When he does, he calls it a leathern sack or mm-hmm. a leather sack. Yep. But by the time we get to chapter 21 of this same volume, he calls it a little sack of human skin. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Craig, you and I have resolved a problem like this before in the first chapter of Shadow, when we were first discussing the implications of the first Severian, whose life was similar but different from our Severians. We hit upon the explanation that Severian can make errors because his soul is split across two timelines. Yes, we solved it. There is no, <laughs> there's no reason to discuss it yeah. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. However, this will not do in this case. One of the few details that Severian is sure of regarding the first Severian's life is that he did not carry the claw. No claw, no claw sack for Dorcas to make for him. Furthermore, uh, Greg, I'm personally pretty confident that the first Severian did not resurrect Dorcas. So we don't even have, in my opinion, the seamstress, let alone the product. So I, I maybe, maybe Craig... This is a temporary slip up by Wolf. You know, he forgot the sack was originally made of doe skin. That's a major detail to flub. Especially when the thing that it really is, is made of human skin. Like the same. Yeah. Whether- he, say, he doesn't just say it's man skin. He says made of human skin. Yeah, yeah. It's not like you can't remember if it was doe skin or cow skin. <laughs> it's Yeah. And, and then also in Earth of the New Sun, he refers to the sack as the little sack of manskin that Dorcas had sewn for the claw. Yep. So now we could say that, you know, the first time he mentioned it, Wolf wrote doe skin and then he forgot. And forever after that, he wrote human skin. Perhaps when he wrote Earth of the New Sun, he only checked the later spot where he says it was made of human skin. I, I'd be willing to go with that 
like you said, if in sort of Lictor, Severian, they called it a sack of man skin, but he didn't. He calls it a little sack of human skin, which is really graphic. I don't think that after writing that, you could gloss over doe skin anymore. And it seems so unlike Dorcas, especially the way she's talking about in this chapter. Yeah. Right. Where she's creeped out and bothered truly by what Severian is doing. How would she overlook that to use human skin to hold this thing that might be a holy relic? Right. Like well, she might not have had, you know, doe skin available. She's working at the Vincula. Maybe human skin is all she has. Maybe, maybe so. Um, yeah. yeah, that could be, it could be a materials thing, but it, if he's actually kind of thinking that far ahead, that just seems again, like, well, he wouldn't have made this mistake and he wouldn't have called. Yeah, it exactly. Skin. Like if it's, if he's actually thinking it out that far ahead, why would she have done this? Then yeah, <laughs> it, it, then he wouldn't have said doe skin here. So well, literally, that's the only solution I can think of this is that it creeps Severian out to think of Dorcas making a sack from human skin. The, the materials, you know, like you said, it's common in his Vincula. But he directly says it later, right? Like, that's the weird thing. He yeah. Flat out well, says, you know, he, he does that, right? He, he, he hides stuff and then he tells us later. Yeah. Yeah. But while he's remembering his arguments to Dorcas about how reasonable his job is, he finds it perhaps difficult to write down that the materials that she had was human skin. And since the sack is made of doe skin and not buck skin, the more common term, I think, uh, perhaps Severian knows that this particular skin came from a woman. Hmm. That's an interesting point. Do we know who it would come from then? Do you have <laughs> no, any idea? Boy, that would be even I mean, worse to think of. I mean, it'd be a, off. Well, let me tan this hide here. <laughs> well, I mean, I assume that means that it would come from a woman prisoner, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. You know, what happens to the bodies after they're, you know. Yeah, if they're not. Not just, all the bodies are going to be claimed. They're not just flushed, right? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. That would all the bodies. You're going to get some complaints downstream from the city if you have that. <laughs> yeah. I that makes sense as a rationale. If it wasn't just a mistake, though, it seems like that should be something that he would call out more often. You know, I it, it's so hard. It's, like, been I, my, it, it's been my inclination to say mistake, but the more I've thought about it, you know, especially for this chapter, the more impossible it just seems to me to be. He may have like like say he Wolf originally wrote wrote Doskin and thought okay that's cool and then he wrote Manskin because he thought that's really cool and then he didn't update Doskin well you know he did do multiple versions on these chapters I just don't know how he reviews and rewrites these chapters yeah. and doesn't notice Doskin that's yeah. just that's yeah. a big thing. So I do like the idea that maybe he doesn't want to come right out and say it and it is a woman's skin. And so, yeah, he does the kind of sublimation thing mm -hmm. and just calling it doe skin, call it female. Yeah, I yeah. kind of like that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm at this point, though, I don't have as good an explanation like it is is what it might mean or or suggest. Um, so I'll have to think about that more with, with the rest of them, but yep, this, mm -hmm. this is a problem. And this one, for some reason, and 
I have no rationale for this. It is totally just a gut thing. This one I feel more like makes sense just as an error somehow. I um, wanted to. <laughs> yeah, then then like like Drott and Roche, that it that just almost doesn't make sense to me. Like that was so easy to check. Like how could that possibly be? Because it was just right there. Um and the first and, page. And yeah, the first page. And 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 so I don't know. And I I don't know if that's I don't just total. I do. I like the idea that because he's very sensitive about Dorcas's feelings here, that it it's messing with his mind a little bit. I like that. Mm -hmm. I like that. I'm. I feel like we ought to see more examples of that, maybe somehow. But I still like that idea. I have to say. So he does keep um, talking about the gem, though. He says, "Yeah, a dozen times during those first weeks, I dreamed I saw the gem aflame." hanging in the air above me like its own burning cathedral and woke to find it blazing so brightly that a faint radiance showed through the thin leather. And once or twice each night, I awakened to discover that I was lying on my back with a sack on my chest, seemingly grown so heavy, though I could lift it with my hand without effort, that it was crushing out my life. Oh, wow. That's once we get, we get the, the whole Frodo in the ring thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we also get the yeah the reference to the burning cathedral yep. uh, as an equation to the claw itself, symbol of the claw, the the claw. Yeah, which this is kind of a cool moment of sort of how those symbols work because each time the symbol is a thing around something more holy, right? Like the temple itself wasn't important. It was just, it was the house of the claw. And mm -hmm. here he's thinking of the sack and the sack itself is not important because it's the claw inside that is. But then we look at, okay, well, what is the claw? It's a gem that's around the supposed claw thorn. itself. That's the real thing. But then we find out too, the thorn itself is just a thorn, but it's because it's got the blood inside that's important. And then we know, of course, the blood is only important because of who or what Severian is. It's just and then we find out that Severian is only important because everything is holy. Yeah. And I just like that that's how the symbol works in this little passage, that it's always, you know, a container with something more important, but then you get down to what is that? And it's another symbol. It's mm -hmm. another container. And, and it does kind of work to that same experience he has later on when yeah everything is holy like it's it's not that there's just one thing among others it's like everything is kind of like something that points to another side of the sacredness of this thing and it's right just a really really cool way to make those images i think so i like it i like it a lot <laughs> Sorry, this is this is the the kind of poetry geek in me that gets excited by stuff like this but yeah the burden begins to affect severian's relationship with dorcas uh, he says that she was, quote, disturbed by it even more than I. Mm -hmm. And remember that in a sense, not literally in my opinion, but from a religious logic of Severian, Dorcas is like that burning cathedral. She is here because he has the claw. Hmm. Right. So, okay. So we'll read a long passage here, but he says, such changes are always in my experience unpleasant if only because they imply the likelihood of further change. While we had been journeying together, and we had been traveling with greater or lesser expedition, from the moment in the Garden of Endless Sleep when Dorcas helped me clamber half-drowned onto the floating walkway of Sedge, it had been as equals and companions, each of us walking every league we covered on our own feet or riding our own mount. 
If I had supplied a measure of physical protection to Dorcas, she had equally supplied a certain moral shelter to me, and that few could pretend for long to despise her innocent beauty, or profess horror at my office, when in looking at me, they could not help but see her as well. She had been my counselor in perplexity, and my comrade in a hundred desert places. When we at last entered Thrax and I presented Master Palamon's letter to the Archon, all that was by necessity ended. In my Fulligen habit, I no longer had to fear the crowd. Rather, they feared me as the highest official of the most dreaded arm of the state. Dorcas lived now in the quarters of the Vincula, set aside for me, not as an equal, but as the paramour the Cumaean had once called her. Her counsel had become useless, or nearly so, because the difficulties that oppressed me were the legal and administrative ones I had been trained for years to wrestle with, and about which she knew nothing. And moreover, because I seldom had the time or energy to explain them to her so that we might discuss them. And so, you know, this this kind of a description, we see that it's not Dorcas that is becoming separated from Severian because of his job. Mm-hmm. It's Severian who's becoming distant from Dorcas mm-hmm. because he is a neater, yep. because he's very busy, because she doesn't understand this particular kind of work that he has to do. And, you know, she's just, she ceases to be central to his life. She's, yeah. it's not that they're no longer equals. He's the one who has sub- subjected her position. Yep. And there was so much talk in Claw where he helped feeling like he needed to protect her or he had this tenderness towards her. Mm-hmm. Not here, right? It's yeah. it, there's it's still affection for her, but that same sense of a sort of immediate draw to be her protector, like we don't get that because this whole conversation they've had before is so much more, more like, you know, buck up. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> you right, know, exactly. and it's, hey, this it's, is the job. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even this discussion here is sort of very yeah, it, it's very pragmatic. It's like, yes, we had served a purpose for each other, but now not so That's much. That's all we, over. In some yeah. ways it's disingenuous because of the, the way he talked about it. At least he does point out, you know, she offered some kind of moral shelter for me. So there's a little bit there, but it's it was it was definitely more than that. The need they had for each other was way more than just what he calls right there because she needed somebody to be attached to because she otherwise had nothing and no she was utterly rudderless in the world, like with, with literally new, mm-hmm. had nothing to do, nowhere to go. Um, and, yet and she's really, you know, he always talks about being her protector, but she's really more often than anything else, uh, Severian's own protector, protecting him from his own idiocy. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And his draw to her too was that complicated sort of mix of, he didn't act towards her quite so maternally as, as he did, you know, other, other female, whether Thecla or the, uh, or the Undine or something like that. There wasn't quite that same attitude all the time, but she was definitely that expression of feeling that he could never have any other time. And it sort of fascinated him and, and was something he had never felt in the, in, with the torturers before. So yeah, there's, there's a lot that went on that in this little passage, he just flat out ignores. Um, exactly. And, and yeah. it's kind of rationalizing like how, how this went away, but you're right. I think in the end it's, he's sort of also saying, yeah, I pushed her away. So yeah. Anyway, and he, yeah. he's, he's going to, he, his 
trying to maneuver her to take a place outside of town where he'll just see her occasionally. And as we can see, you know, not very long out of her sight, he's going to be making out with, uh, yep. with someone's Somebody wife. Else. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So he says, thus, while I stood watch after watch in the Archon's court, Dorcas fell into the habit of wandering the city. And we, who had been incessantly together throughout the latter part of the spring, came now in summer to see each other hardly at all, sharing a meal in the evening and climbing exhausted into a bed where we seldom did more than fall asleep in each other's arms. At last, the full moon shone. Ah, look at that, Craig. Answers at last. <laughs> if, as I believe, the F Feast of Holy Catherine is on the first full moon after the spring equinox. And Severian was at the Stone Town 28, 29 days after that. Then he had two more months in spring and one of the summer. And here we are, three complete moon cycles after the Stone Town, about 85 days later, mm -hmm. almost four months since his elevation ceremony. Yeah. Cool. At last, the full moon shone. <laughs> With what joy? By the way, thank you for actually doing the calculations and everything. <laughs> not, not the thing I immediately jumped to, but it, but incredibly helpful. So thank you. So at last, the full moon shone. With what joy I beheld it from the roof of the bartizan, green as an emerald in its mantle of forest, and round as the lip of a cup. I was not yet free since all the details of excruciations and administration that had been accumulating during my attendance on the Archon remained to be dealt with, but I was now at least free to devote my full attention to them, which seemed then nearly as good a thing as freedom itself. And so the next day he invited Dorcas to inspect the subterranean parts of the Vincula. Maybe he thinks that this is our, his opportunity to reconnect with Dorcas yep. and uh, didn't work out too well. Yep. Notice too here how he's talking about freedom is the freedom to just do his duty, right? Just to do mm -hmm. his duty. Like that's the way he's thinking of it now. Very different from how he'll think of it in a while and very different too from how he thought of it when he was a kid. But right. Exactly. So, so he says about, yeah, inviting her Having down. Having her inspect the subterranean yeah. parts. Yeah. It, it was an error. She grew ill in the foul air, surrounded by the misery of the prisoners. That night, as I have already recounted, she told me she had gone to the public baths, a rare thing for her, whose fear of water was so great that she washed herself bit by bit with a sponge, dipped in a bowl no deeper than a dish of soup, to free her hair and skin from the odor of the shaft, and that she had heard the bath attendants pointing her out to the other patrons. And now, finally, we get the answer to what was in her hair. <laughs> Wolf always pays off eventually. Yeah. Hmm. And now the thing being called Master of the House of Chains, right? I mean, of course, that sounds like a good kind of gothic kind of thing. But uh -huh. we actually understand literally a bit more now that this prison really is like long chains of people in one big long thing. So it's it's even worse than just the at least to me at least it's like once you actually see how these chains work totally harder than just like the regular chains against a wall yeah yeah with it's, a it's nothing like, like the, it's, well, it, the it, it's hard to imagine that the management would be viewed as humane yeah <laughs> but when yeah. you see it compared to this yeah so it's another good moment like because claw starts off with you know him actually committing 
an execution, right? Like, so we get his job right there. And then the rest of the book, you don't get quite as much about him being a torturer because all this other stuff starts to happen. Um, but it's nice here that it throws him right back into that. Cause, and, and I know lots of people do, it's easy to forget when you're reading about Severian that he is a torturer all the way through all of this, like up until maybe he, he becomes a soldier. Like I know he says he quits finally in this job, mm-hmm. but in, in this book, but it is good at this point to really bang that home. Yeah. That he's not just a sort of weirdly moral, amoral growing guy, right? No, he's still very much a professional torturer. So to call him master of the chains here, even though, and they'll, he and Abdesis will talk about the term master, but for all intents and purposes at this point, yeah, he's no longer just a journeyman. He is a professional, a master. He is in a position of super responsibility, which now he talks about for a a second as a kind of freedom, like freedom just to do my job. But as he's going to have to face up pretty quick, now he's going to have to really face up to the responsibility for what he's doing. Like, it's not like that freedom that he feels just to finally do there and not have to, to worry about other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's an illusion. That's going to go away. So that's that's what's involved in being the master is that it actually means he's got to finally come face to face with what am I doing here? And that's what we get in the first first little bit of the rest of this book. What about you? (laughs) We certainly hope that you all will reach out to us with your ideas and other comments and your thoughts and your corrections and your complaints and that you'll bring them to us on the Facebook group, on subreddit, Twitter, uh, well, X or Blue Sky. (laughs) Email Patreon site of the you know master uh, Slack channel and and you know you can find out how to do all this in the show notes uh, and just leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, but most importantly of all, tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, calling to you from the House of Chains, may the Moira favor you. Yes, indeed. And consider taking a bath and wash whatever is in your hair out of your hair. <laughs> you didn't have to say it in front of everybody. <laughs> ah. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. All day long they work so hard Till the sun is going down Working on the highways and byways And wearing, wearing a frown You hear them moaning their lives away Then you hear somebody say That's the sound of the men Working on the chain gang That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. All day long they're saying, my, 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 my work is so hard. Give me water. I'm thirsty, my, my work is so hard. My, 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 my work is so hard. Before the bloopers, first, let me offer a quick thank you to everybody and just acknowledge that, yeah, we did kind of disappear for a few months. We both just got really busy with life and work. And as you can 
tell from my voice here is not yeah i've been sick with some kind of head thing for like a month and a half which put me off of recording the last little bits we needed to do and i just finally decided screw it um but lots of stuff going on work went nuts um my son's athletic stuff got really busy had a uh a state championship football run in there for the the freshman kicker which was pretty cool but also took a lot of traveling uh, around the state um but also work mess we just got busy and plus we figured you know we've been going for what four years ish three four years without a really long break and in between the two books seemed like a or, or two volumes i should say uh seemed like a reasonable place to do that so thank you for your patience thanks for sticking with us but i just wanted to say something real quick to acknowledge it didn't want to stick it at the front because you know for posterity we want all these episodes to be nice and smooth but we'll throw this in at the end for everybody else it makes me think of uh the the dylan song uh don't trust me to show you beauty. Beauty may only turn to rust. So Did you uh, see, see he just came out with a book called The Philosophy of Modern Song. No. It's, how can I, I miss that? It's uh I don't know if he just did, but it's fairly recent. And he kind of goes through a lot of both his songs and other people's songs that he likes and talks about why he likes them. Um and a lot of it's very random, but it's good. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, that's that tends to be the way he writes. Yeah. Although his his Chronicles was really good. Um, and I kind of thought that we were going to get another half to that, you know, autobiography, but, um, maybe, I don't know, maybe he's wait, maybe he's got it in reserve for when he dies. All right. <sighs> a long file. Let's see. Oh, we didn't, I, I should have, I'm so used to bugging us at an hour to stop. That's right. Oh, oh, oh. well, no, it'll, it'll be fine. Oh, this is an hour and 50 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Here, let's hit stop. Let's make sure just to, okay, here we go. And we are confused. Like I still, um, the uh oh i won't mention that there yeah i'll get off on a tangent on another one that starts <laughs> starts with a, a guy out looking for his cat and then just all kinds of craziness goes on but why i was hanged certainly sounds interesting oh yeah that was uh that's that, that's in the um uh, what's it i i i have the anthology um oh that one is but, in it, well yeah no no it's it was in the. It was originally oh, published in I, an anthology, but gotcha, not gotcha. in the not in our actual collection. So, right, gotcha, to gotcha, gotcha. why I was hanged. All right, cool. Okay, now I get an excuse to actually read something. <laughs> you can read your book. <laughs> okay. All right, cool. Well then, let me hit. Stop. Yeah, that's what I can. Yeah, it's a weird sentence where he said, "Though he did not carry the claw of the conciliator, he must have been drawn to the fighting in the north." Which is oh, to say, I he didn't go thing. north to okay. return it to the Pellerines. He, right. he was there going go. to. Okay. Yep. Right. Yep. 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 So I knew it was connected to the war. I just I had forgotten exactly how. So yeah. yeah. Okay. 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 I don't have any after all that. Right. That doesn't. <laughs> I have no no real substance for that. I just wanted to be sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. You want to know what we were talking Seven about? Seven squadrons of Demarchi. Did we say Demarchi or Demarchi? I forget what we said. I always say Demarchi. Demarchi. That's what I thought. Some. Who probably got his undead status not by dying. But as an infection curse from fighting something uncanny, uh, we can probably cut that out. I'm not sure what to do with that. Only thing I don't like about mine is the part where I say, like, I, how do I say it? We don't pretend that you and we have read these books. I Hang on. I'm going I'm to give it to you just now. Hold oh, on. Oh, okay. But I mean, we, we, can take, we can take out nearly 40-year-old book because it's 40 years 40 old years now. Old. I was going to say, anything else we want to change, we can do so. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the... Wait, that's the old one. <laughs> so, right. You got anything else? No. 
<laughs> so, okay. Well, 